Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Sorry for the delay here. I've been having some technical difficulties. My, uh, I think my router was having some kind of router issue. You know, it needed a stern talking to, but we've had it out and I think we've come to a mutual understanding. Uh, so we're ready to roll. Thank you everybody for joining us tonight. Thank you for the, everyone who has been in, uh, been patiently waiting and even to those who've been impatiently waiting. I totally understand. Uh, and we are just about ready to roll. Let me make a couple quick announcements before we start. Before we start session 57 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings, um, uh, has uh, has there been any kind of a, a, a betting pool yet on how many sessions it's going to take us to complete book one exactly, right? Uh, I mean, we're getting closer to that. Right? We're not too, too far away from that yet. So I think, um, you know, 57, well, we're getting there. We're getting there. Anyway, uh, so, um, so yeah, so, 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 so welcome back. Now, let me, okay, so a couple announcements. First and most importantly, I think I, I know I've announced this in some places, but I think that this didn't become official until last Wednesday. So I know I announced it at the Mythgard Academy, but I don't think I did here. And that is that we have met our fundraising goal, preliminary fundraising goal anyway, uh, for our certification costs. Thank you to everybody who contributed so generously. Of course, it was uh, a week, uh, well, a week and a half ago now, um, uh, two weeks ago this coming Thursday that I made the announcement about how Signum is beginning uh, to do the state certification process, which is so exciting and awesome. And uh, we are really delighted to be moving into the next stage of our existence. And it's like this thing that's even hard for us to understand. But there it is. And here we are. Uh, so this has been great. We have raised almost $28,000 uh, in the you know, 10 days or so since I made the announcement. Uh, that is incredible. We needed 23720 uh for our state certification costs, uh, and we have exceeded that, which is awesome because after we complete the state certification process, we're going to begin the process of applying for accreditation. So, and that is a little more expensive. Okay, well, it's either a little more expensive or a lot more expensive, one or the other. Uh, I have uh, uh, I have some conversations to have with them, and hopefully a charisma check to pass, and uh, and and maybe I can talk them into the smaller end of that. But in any case, it's going to be even more. Um, and but but that's the awesome news is that you know we're already. We're already well on our way. We're already $4,000 towards our accreditation fund on top of our certification fund, which means, of course, uh, if you uh, if you haven't had a chance to donate yet, we still very, very welcome and very needed uh, throughout this uh, this process, which is going to be going on through the rest of the year. I'll be giving updates as we go. Um, you know, those of you who saw the thing last Thursday will see, I, you know, I posted a chart of all of the fees we have I'm trying to be totally transparent throughout this process. I can't yet be quite so transparent concerning the accreditation stuff um because this is a, there's there's some stuff to work out but uh but we are we are on the path and it is uh it is it is pretty exciting so um 
Anyway, so so that's what's uh, so that's what's going on. And again, thank you so much to everybody. This is just the outpouring uh, of support, um, both you know, both in in of course the the financial support, but also even just in the uh, the 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 words of encouragement and appreciation, and and the 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 cheerful and joyful spreading of the news uh, has been so wonderful over the last two weeks. And I thanks to, uh, thanks to all of you uh, who have been helping us with that. Um, so now the uh, the second thing that I wanted to then touch on is another thing which is coming up very soon, um, which is um, London Moot, right? And I know that some of you are planning to come to London Moot. I'm going to, at the risk of seeming to rub it in to the people who can't come to London Moot, I wanted to share, because I wanted to, those of you who are planning to come, I wanted to draw your attention to something in case you hadn't noticed it, right? So, okay, so so here's the London Moot site, right? Uh, so if you go to the schedule, uh, here's the uh, uh, here's the the schedule for the day. Lots of uh, really really fun talks, uh, including keynotes from Beatrice Groves, who's talking about Harry Potter, the Christian myth in Harry Potter. Uh, John Garth, awesome awesome Tolkien scholar, who I I, I hope is familiar uh, to all of you. Uh, his talk is going to be called Tolkien 101 Years Ago: The Creation of a Creation Myth, uh, and that's going to be uh, I can't wait to hear uh, John Garth talk about that. Uh, my uh, uh, talk is going to be called Tolkien on Screen, Preserving the Core of the Original. Uh, the core of the original, it's a phrase from Tolkien when he was talking about, you may remember in Tolkien's letters, um, when he did uh, this sort of extensive commentary on a screenplay for The Lord of the Rings that he saw, right? And and looking at, so I'm going to be looking at some of his direct reactions, because uh, I'm thinking a lot, of course, about adaptation and film adaptation of, uh, uh, of Tolkien, of course. It's sort of an issue in the air right now. Right. So uh, I've been thinking about it a lot. So I want to look at some of the things that Tolkien himself said very concretely about film adap- uh, about a film adaptation uh, of his own, or at least a screenplay of a film adaptation uh, of The Lord of the Rings. And then be uh, be looking at some other things. I'm going to be talking some about some of the, the conclusions I've drawn and the experiences I've had on our Silmarillion film project and uh, and other things, too. So uh, that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun. So, so those, this is, this is the main schedule, but here's the other thing I wanted to draw your attention to. If you're planning to come, uh, to London moot, there's this extra thing, right? So, okay. So there's this optional pre-conference field trip of London literary landmarks, uh, that Darren Gray, the organizer has put together. Look how, look how, look how cool this is. This is what we're going to do on Friday, right? Before the conference on Saturday, uh, we're going to go on a tour of the British library treasures exhibition, which the British library. Oh my goodness. There's so many amazing things there. Um, we're going to go to the Dickens Museum, uh, the Cecil Court Antiquarian Bookshops, right? So we're going to go to, go to, go to the Antiquarian Bookshops. Uh, we're going to go out for dinner and then we're going to go see Hamlet at the Globe, right? Oh man, this is going to be so awesome. So we're going to have a whole, this whole extra optional day of literary London uh, on Friday, and then we'll have the conference uh, on Saturday. So uh, I just wanted to make sure that like everybody who is, who is, uh, uh, who is going is sort of aware of this extra thing. Cause there's this registration form uh, just so that he could know who's all coming and everything. Um, so uh, anyway, this is, this is pretty, this is pretty super cool. So again, I, I apologize to those of you who can't come, 
but you know this is this is pretty cool so just wanted to share that i'm really looking forward to this i'm uh, uh i'm not going to be able to be uh in england for very long this time uh i'm only going to be out there for a few days but i'm totally going to be there for the friday and the saturday uh so that's going to be uh uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope to be able to see uh, some of you there. I know that some uh, people are coming, so we will um, uh, we'll 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 see what happens. All right. I hope to to meet some of you there. So that's the second announcement that I wanted to remind people about. There's still time to sign up, I believe. If you uh, if if you uh, think you might be able to come and you haven't registered yet, still time. You should totally do it. Um, all right. So. Those are my announcements for today. Let us jump into our discussion back into chapter 10. Uh, I want to, um, uh, I want to, uh, so, t- so today's called Seeing the Big Picture. Is it really in these, so these really interesting moments, right? Where uh, we have everybody's perspective, except possibly Strider's, um, really sort of expands and they begin to, they sort of see things in a different light here, right? Butterbur comes to a new understanding of what's going on. Frodo is going to come to a new understanding uh, of what's going on. And then, of course, Pippin and Sam are going to get a bit of an eye opener uh, if we get as far as that. Um, But um, anyway, okay. So, uh, yeah, okay. So let's... um, Let's move forward. So I, I, I wanted to jump straight into straight into the text here tonight. Okay. Butterbur, you remember, has just asking, what's this all about, right? Um, what's going, you know, he's, he's asking Frodo, what is it that's going on? Because obviously Gandalf didn't tell him, right? Gandalf didn't give him any concrete warning about what was happening. And, you know, there's some... Um, um, there are some good reasons for that, right? Especially since he was hoping it wasn't going to come to this, right? But we'll get to that later on. Anyway, I'm sorry I can't explain it all, answered Frodo. I'm tired and very worried, and it's a long tale. But if you mean to help me, I ought to warn you that you will be in danger as long as I am in your house. These black riders, I'm not sure, but I think, I fear they come from, they come from Mordor said Strider in a low voice. From Mordor, Barlamin, if that means anything to you. Save us, cried Mr. Butterbur, turning pale. The name evidently was known to him. That is the worst news that has come to Bree in my time. It is, said Frodo. Are you still willing to help me? I am, said Mr. Butterbur, more than ever, though I don't know what the likes of me can do against... against... he faltered. Against the shadow in the east, said Strider quietly. Not much, Barlamin, but every little helps. You can let Mr. Underhill stay here tonight, as Mr. Underhill, and you can forget the name of Baggins till he is far away. Okay. Um, what do you notice here? What, what, what particularly strikes you about this passage? Uh, the thing that kind of that I find most fascinating about this passage in particular is. It's like there are two different conversations going on here, right? Frodo and Butterbur are kind of operating on the same wavelength here, right? I'm sorry, I can't. I'm tired and very worried. If you mean to help me, I ought to warn you. I'm not sure, but I think they come from. And here's, you know, Butterbur. Save us. That is the worst news. It is. Are you still willing to help me? I am more than ever. And then Strider keeps interrupting, right? He keeps interjecting these like seriously ominous, you know, they come from Mordor. From Mordor, Barliman, against the shadow in the east. Not much, Barliman, but every little helps, right? You know, it's like that. 
the, Frodo, Frodo and Parliament are, they're understanding each other, right? They're operating, whereas Strider keeps kind of cutting in. Um, and that's really interesting, right? Um, so let's, let's, let's look, look through this. And I, I agree with you, by the way, several people here, uh, in the discord chat are pointing out how well this part of the conversation really speaks for Butterbur. And I totally agree. Um, it, it really does. Right. Um, uh, Mike, I agree more than ever, uh, does speak very well of Butterbur's character. What is his response to this? What has to be fairly shocking news, right? Um, uh, you know, he's very frightened, right? Um, that is the worst news that has come to Bree in my time, right? Um, but are you still willing to help? Yes, more than ever. So I agree. That's, that's, uh, uh, that's, that, that's very good. Um, uh, and Mike, yeah, he could have gone all struck by lightning, right? Yeah, but he, but he didn't. Um, and yes, uh, Rendell, he, he, he'll do his best, even if it's not much, right? Um, yeah, now, good. Now, Matt and Tom are both interested in, in a phrase which I agree is very interesting. Save us, right? Save us, cried Butterbur, turning pale. Um, Matt suggests it does imply a belief in a divine force that we don't often get, right? Some kind of general appeal. And Tom was asking more broadly, whose assistance exactly is he requesting? Um, I don't really know. Right. Um, it's not at all clear. I don't see much reason to think that Butterbur has even a vague notion, really, of the um, of the Valar. Right. That he's that this is some kind of vague invocation of, you know, asking for the assistance of the Valar. Um, I mean, it's theoretically possible that it could be, but I don't really know any reason um to um to to believe that like that's actually actively what's in his mind it does seem more matt as you were saying like a a sort of a broad just some an appeal right an appeal to i don't know whom right um he just he knows that they need saving um uh that what can he do Right. Against against. Right. We can see his own sense of his helplessness. Um, uh, this is uh, wait. Yeah. So Ragamuffin here on Twitter was just saying that save us could just be an expression like God bless you in response to a sneeze. Well, yes, except God bless you in response to a sneeze shows a basic theological underpinning. Right. I mean, you might not be meaning it. You know, it is quite likely when you say God bless you that you're not actually, you know, thinking about invoking a monotheistic God and asking his blessing upon the person who just sneezed. Right. That whole the whole explicit theological conception that underlies it may not be in your mind. Right. But it is nevertheless the cultural root of what you're saying. Um, uh, whereas um, uh, whereas when uh he says, save us. Is that, does that in fact also suggest a similar kind of cultural underpinning, right? That there is some sense 
in the culture of Brie, of like that there exists a force to appeal to, right? Presumably not a Luvatar. Um, maybe the maybe the the um, the Valar, perhaps, but. Um, I can't imagine that it's uh, Valoria. I'd be super surprised if the concept concept here were was that it was it was a a conception of Iluvatar, you know, or, or Eru um, among the people here. That's I won't say a secret exactly. It's not like anyone's hiding it. Uh, the existence of Iluvatar, but that does not seem to be a a, a well known thing. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, Eroheb, I agree that the Valar turn him aside or something like that could easily turn into a semi-meaningless save us given a few millennia. Yeah, if, if that's the case, I mean, you could argue that, right? You could conceivably say, um, that this is, uh, a relic of a kind of a, you know, that sort of expression, that kind of... Because the, the, the Valar turn him aside, as Eroheb was quoting here, that's what the Dunedain down in Athelion say when the Mumak is heading towards them, right? Um, but they, of course, have a much more explicit theological grounding, right? They know about the Valar, and they actually have ceremonies that revere them, right? We're, we're way far away from that, both culturally and geographically, right, in Bree. Um... So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder, Irinda says an appeal to a higher power isn't necessarily an appeal to a divine one. Bree was once ruled by a king. Yes, yes, it's true. It's true. It needn't necessarily suggest a divine power. But... I don't know. I mean, I suppose Save Us could refer to a human authority, conceivably. Um, that would seem an odd sort of thing to say. Maybe not. I mean, maybe it it could simply be a kind of reflection of Butterbur's like knowledge that they need help, right? The hope that someone will save them, right? And he's not particular about what it is or who it is. Um, but uh, maybe that... Maybe that's the reason for the vagueness, right? Maybe because it is possible, of course. Um, I guess, you know, the more I think about it, Irindus, the more I think that if I had to guess where a Breland expression came from the old days, which I thought was more likely, if I thought it more likely that a, a sort of a, a, a vaguely or sort of quasi-theological statement Dis in descending from the time of Arnor, you know, when the, 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 the cultural influence of Arnor was strong in this region, whether that is surviving here in his Save Us, or whether it's um, some kind of survivor of a more kind of political thing, right? Because I can imagine that Bree, which seems to have considered itself always independent, right? May have held itself independent from the kingdom of Arnor, but yet when in times of need, they could have called out, right? When they were threatened by forces beyond their ability to cope, they probably would have called out to Arnor to save them. Um, you know, so could this be, uh, you know, this sort of like, uh, 
again descended over millennia this concept of like you know the king will save us or uh or whatever like you know i don't know it's it seems conceivable it feels more like a like a theological statement essentially but um um but i agree cecilia we really know so little about any kind of religion uh or sort of even vestige of religious belief uh in this uh in this area remember even frodo is going to feel rustic and uncouth when he's eating with faramir uh in that incident because it's there's just there's just not much um Erekeb is remembering the line uh, in The Hobbit, of course, about they have seldom even heard of the king around here. And I was thinking of that, too, uh, for that same reason, Erekeb. Possibly. Possibly. I guess I could be talked into it, but I'm not a hundred. It doesn't feel exactly, exactly right. Um, yeah. And again, just to clarify, for, I'm not when, when I talk about the possible theological underpinnings of it, I don't mean that Butterbur himself in, intends it devoutly, just as for Thoughtless, you point out, of course, many people use statements like that, um, which are theological in their origin, um, but which they don't intend theologically at all. I totally get that. And, and, and I acknowledge that. But that's not the point. The point is, those still do have theological underpinnings, right? I mean, the, the, they, they show you something about our cultural history at the very least even if even if they don't show you some anything about your particular belief system that you say them the fact that you say them still shows us something about the culture of which you're a part right that that's the point um that i'm making about that um uh but um anyway anyway yeah and uh, and mike you're absolutely right that in the town of Bree, the kings would functionally be as remote as the Valar in history, no question. I mean, there has not been a king in what? It's been as long since there was a king to rule over them in Arnor as it's been. What's a comparable comparison for us? I mean, since, you know, the... Yeah, since Roman times, exactly, essentially. Um, so yeah, think about them as as we, that's a, that's actually a pretty nifty parallel there. Um, uh, uh, at the least, since like Anglo-Saxon kings, right? So yeah, yeah, um, it's been it's been it's been a long time. Um, okay. Uh, okay. Let me, let me, let me get back to the, um, let me get back to the, to the, to the passage here. Um, Frodo is initially uncertain how to respond, right? Um, I'm sorry. I can't explain it all. He says, right? Um, and he makes an excuse. I'm tired and very worried and it's a long tale. Like, I don't want to talk about it. Um, it seems fairly clear that he's scrambling, right? Frodo's already messed it up, right? He's put his foot in it so many times already here tonight that he, uh, and then this conversation with Strider that he was just in the middle of and now he's put, being put into another position. So, he was already in this, do I trust Strider or not? And remember that that was just coming to a, a sort of a crisis point, right? Strider was just about to, you know, 
as he said, he was about to lay everything he had on the table before them, right, to try to convince them that they should trust him. So he was just at, you know, a critical moment of trying to figure out whether he could take the risk to trust Strider completely and go off with him and follow him through the wilderness, when now Butterbur comes in and he's trying to figure out to what extent he can uh, now trust Butterbur either. So he is saying he's trying to put him off, right? Um, if you mean to help me, I ought to warn you. It's really interesting to me that that's Frodo's first impulse, right? He doesn't want to say anything. He doesn't want to explain about his quest. He doesn't want to explain uh, anything about why the Black Riders are looking for him or anything like that. He's not going to. He's not going to answer the question. What's it all about, right? Um, but he does feel like he's got to. He's got to explain, right? He's got to tell. Uh, but he can't just let Butterbur suspect that the Black Riders are merely ruffians or something, right? Um, and this seems to me. This seems to me to be very laudable of Frodo and also should remind us. Remember, this was Frodo's first impulse back in chapter two as well, right? He was concerned about drawing trouble to the Shire, right? Remember when he contrasted his quest with Bilbo's quest? No there and back again journey, right? He goes to he goes to lose a treasure and not to find one. Um, he goes, you know, uh, he's going from danger into danger, drawing it after him right? Um, everyone near him is in danger. And so you can see him thinking about that again here, right? That, okay, so I accept that Butterbur is a friend, right? But his first conclusion is, therefore, I want to get him in as little trouble as possible, right? I really need to, to put him on his guard. Um, and yes, Mad Violinist, you're absolutely right um, that it's, um, it is very like Frodo. We've seen him doing that, not only in that first impulse in Chapter 2, but of course, as you were recalling, um, his impulses in Chapter 3, like that moment that you specifically alluded to when he's looking down at Pippin, right, and uh, and saying, no, I, I, I can't uh, bring even them into danger like this, right? And Sandy finds Sam looking at him like Sam knows what he's thinking. Um, anyway, yeah, so this is... Um, this is this is and then of course you've got the whole conspiracy issue and stuff. So uh, this is this has been a concern of his all along, and it is uh, uh, it is sort of nice to see Frodo consistently applying this now to Butterbur uh, as well. But notice that he's not how diffident he is. He doesn't know what to say or how to say it. And it's interesting because remember we've already seen kind of two sides of this. Right, his conversation with Gildor. He's asking Gildor, "What are the Black Riders?" Right, and Gildor's like. They're servants of the enemy. You don't need to know anything more, right? If I told you more, you would be transfixed with horror, right, and unable to move. And then Strider, in contrast to that, says, you don't, you, you don't fear them enough, right? If you feared them more, you know, then maybe you would act differently, right? Um, now, Frodo, sort of caught in between those two things, doesn't know, um, doesn't know how to how to how to act how to say this right what to say and and how to say it i'm not sure but i think i fear they come from now none of uh, he, none of that is true right he is sure right he this this is the one thing he knows for certain is that they are from mordor right gildor confirmed that 
So the one piece of positive information that he has about the Black Riders is that they come from Mordor. But again, look at how diffident. I'm not sure, but I think, I fear, right? As if this is merely a suspicion of his own, right? Rather than, um, rather than a, a fact that has been attested to him uh, by those that he trusts to know. Um, and then Strider, but and that's the first time that Strider cuts in, right? Here's Frodo fumbling about, trying to figure out what to say and how much to say and how to say it. And Strider says, "They come from Mordor, from Mordor, Barlamin, If that means anything to you, right? Um, and I agree that." Uh, uh, Kimber, that Strider's interruptions do seem like he's trying gently and firmly uh, to help Butterbur and Frodo face up to reality. Yes, exactly. There's no fumbling around, right? Let's be direct about this. Yeah, so in, in, in a sense, he seems to be kind of endorsing the what Frodo just did, right? The decision that Frodo just made. Frodo's first impulse is to say, I need to warn Butterbur, right? Um, and again, I... I, 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 I think that's really worth noticing. I mean, we've made jokes about what a terrible job Frodo has done so far in maintaining his own secrecy, and yet, even even sort of especially given that, what a terrible job he's done so far, um, that's not what he focuses on now, right? Knowing that he's kind of made a botch of that, he's not saying, like, okay, what matters most is to tell nobody anything. So he could just try to uh, just continue trying to shut Butterbird down, right? And But instead he's like, no, I'm not going to bring him into my confidence, right? I'm not going to tell him the whole story, that he, like he just asked me to, but but I'm going to warn him. And Strider, that gets the Strider endorsement, right? As Strider steps in and confirms what Frodo is fumbling around to try to say. Um, and uh, it is interesting Fourth Dauntless that Strider uses Butterbur's first name. In the previously he'd called him Old Butterbur, right? Um, if Old Butterbur got your name right, he says in the common room when referring to him. Um, and he calls him Butterbur again when he is uh, um, he calls him Butterbur again uh, when he's talking to Frodo about him, right? I don't think any harm of, of Old Butterbur. Um yeah, he wasn't addressing him directly, JJ. There, um, when he directed, when he directly addressed him, was when he talked about a fat innkeeper, right? He only remembered his own name because people shouted at him all day. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so from Mordor, if that means anything to you. Um, Yeah. Anyway, okay. If that means anything to you, right? I'm trying to, I'm trying to gauge the tone of that. Um, that is, let me be more explicit. I'm trying to rank the snark factor in that last phrase, if you see what I mean, right? Um, how snarky is that sentence? Because, you know, you could read that quite snarky, right? From Mordor, if that means anything to you, right? He's been giving him a hard time, right? Um, 
you can read this gently, right? You you do know about Mordor, right? You do know what that means, that they came from Mordor, right? Butterbur. Um, or you could read it much more harshly, right? Even if, you know, kind of teasing and good-naturedly, but still a little harsh, right? Like, from Mordor. And you, you probably even you know what that means, right? Um, uh, now, Ricky Ticky is suggesting that the combination, perhaps, of the use of the first name uh, and the sort of harsh, if that means anything to you, uh, it might help to sort of soften soften it a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Stephanie gives it an 8.5 on the snark scale. Yeah, that's pretty high. That's pretty high. I'm not sure I go as high as 8.5, but I kind of think it's a little bit up there, too. Catriona likes to think he's being more gentle here, speaking softer and a bit more respectfully. Possibly. He's speaking in a low voice, right? Now, speaking in a low voice suggests he doesn't want to be overheard, right? He doesn't want Knob in the hall <laughs> to be like, Mordor, what? You know, so... um that's uh um you know so i i i don't think that's uh uh necessarily speaks to his tone in terms of gentleness or harshness um but uh yeah yeah um well i think tom that's a really good idea let's compare a little bit further down. So let's hold on, hold on to that as possibly harsh, right? Possibly, again, harsh in the same kind of line uh, of, uh, you know, the fat innkeeper who uh, only remembers his own name because people shattered at him all day. And then Butterbur's response, right? Save us. That is the worst news that has come to Bree in my time. And then Frodo's response, it is, are you still willing to help me? I am more than ever, though I don't know what the likes of me can do against, against. Now, Notice we have, remember I said Frodo and Butterbur are like on the same level, right? Now, now Butterbur is 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 waffling, right? He doesn't know what to say either. Um, and notice how both of them stumble at the name, right? Frodo doesn't want to name Mordor. He doesn't want to name uh, uh, the the actual place where the, he doesn't want to say the word Mordor, right? Butterbur doesn't want to say the name Sauron. Right, what the likes of me can do against, against, you know, that he's afraid. Right, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to speak the name. And I think it's not just a he who must not be named kind of thing. I mean, there is that element, and of course, we see that element explicitly in Gondor, though for different reasons. But, um, but it's. I, I think it's not only that. Right, there. I I hear that. I I read that as a um uh um I read that as if he says it it's like real, right? Um he's just said that is the worst news that has come to Bree in my time, right? Throughout my entire life there has never been Bree gets news from outside, right? Strange is news from Bree. Remember, Bree is like the the uh, gateway of news to the Shire. Not all of it reaches the Shire, of course, from Bree, but um, 
they're used to hearing news in Bree uh, from travelers who come through East and West, occasionally from people who come up the Greenway. Um, they're used to hearing news. Of all the news that has ever been heard in Bree throughout the lifetime of Butterbur, and it may well be a broader period of time than that. In my time, might just be during my life. It might mean like during the, you know, the era that I consider to be sort of the modern era, right? Uh, it could be even more. Anyway, it's a big statement, right? Um, this is the worst piece of news that has come in. Um, the idea that Brie is now, is actually being entangled in uh, like there, there are people here who have come from Mordor. They've heard of the shadow. They have heard of Sauron. They've heard stories of the old days and the old battles. They will have heard stories of the the that we know that they will have heard stories of the rebuilding of Baradur. Remember those stories even made it through to the Shire. If they've made it through to the Shire, they've certainly made it through Bree, right? So he knows who the enemy is. He knows the relation of the enemy. This is big. This is a big deal, right? Huge, huge, big deal. Um, what he's confronting here is his hometown, right? Bree, way out in Bree land, uh, coming into contact with figures from stories and the kinds of stories that he probably did not himself much like, right? They don't even like traveling conjurers in Bree. They don't like anything uncanny. And now he's being told that, uh, what, these guy, the dude who came and knocked on his door, the guy that he brushed off his doorstep, he is just now learning, right? Is what a servant of actually came from Sauron himself, a servant of who knows what kind of mysterious uh, 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 powers, right? This is unreal. This doesn't happen in Bree, right? This is not, uh, this, this, it's like a worldview changing kind of event, right? It's one thing to hear stories about that. It's another thing for that to literally come home to you, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that it's, um, uh, that seems to be what is kind of waiting to me. So that's how I read that statement. That is the worst news that has come to Brie in my time, right? It's not even a question of, you know, on the badness meter, that's several points higher than anything. This is just, this is a different kind of thing, right? Um, this is why it's the worst in his time ever, right? Uh, because this puts everything in a completely different kind of, um, uh, kind of context. Yeah. Catriona, it's a really interesting way to think about it. Um, uh, the boogeyman is real and his henchmen are already here. Yeah, exactly. And he may be following. Who knows, right? Um, exactly. Um, yeah, I agree. Fortalas, you're right. If anything, uh, Butterbur might be lowballing the badness of this news. I agree. Yeah, bad news does not even really exactly uh, cover, uh, you know, what's going on here. Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, very good. Totally agree. So, okay. So Frodo's response, are you still willing to help me? Is again, now this, I think I, I take this as his logical follow-up, 
um, to what he said to Butterbur back in that first paragraph there, right? Um, his first thing was, I, I need to warn you, right? I want you to understand if you help me what you're getting yourself into. And then having conveyed that, right, with Strider's help, um, he, uh, he now comes back and says, okay, now that we've cleared that up, are you still willing to help, right? Um, I am more than ever. But now he, again, he falters. I don't know what the likes of me can do against, against, he can't, he can't even formulate the sentence, right? He can't think of what, uh, you know, again, he knows stories about Sauron. He knows stories about, you know, the black, uh, you know, the, 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 the black tower, right? Um, he doesn't, he can't even formulate the sentence. Not only can he not think of what he, this whole, I mean, notice what he's doing in that sentence, right? Uh, he is now putting himself and Sauron in the same sentence. He's imagining himself in a role th- that has previously only been reserved for heroes of old legends like Isildur and Gilgalad, right? There's Barlaman Butterbur on the one hand and Sauron the Dark Lord on the other hand, and I'm standing against him and his servants. Like, really? Like, I'm, that, that's actually what's happening? No wonder he can't finish that sentence, right? I mean, talk about changing your worldview, right? Um, that is um, that is absolutely... Um, uh, uh, that is absolutely bizarre. Eric had, that's a really great way of thinking about it. Um, this is Butterbur's Aemir moment. Uh, but instead of dreams and legends rising out of the grass, it's dreams and nightmares. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Aemir is at least confronted with like the heir of Isildur, right? Hey, look at that. So some of the news to Aemir is good news, right? Um, whereas to Butterbur, no, there's no good news. <laughs> there's no silver lining. Um, this is all just really bad news. Um, exactly. Matthew Hirschenroder is thinking of uh, Baron, Hurin, Turin, and Butterbur, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, not Butterbur, not listed among the great uh, uh, elf friends of old, necessarily. Um, now Strider comes in again, right? Against the shadow in the east, said Strider quietly. Not much, Barlaman, but every little helps. You can let Mr. Underhill stay here tonight as Mr. Underhill, and you can forget the name of Baggins till he is far away. Now, I'm still not 100% sure how snarky Strider's previous statement was, right? If that means anything to you. Um... There's at least an edge, I think, still there. I don't think he's being fully gentle yet. I think you could say he might be transitioning out of it, right? But I still think he's kind of trying to 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 startle Butterbur, right? Frodo's kind of trying to break it to him gently, which is why he's hemming and hawing. Uh, Strider is willing to, to shock, right? Um, and I think, remember, he's still... He's still miffed at Butterbur, right? Uh, but anyway, um, so so yeah, I, I I think that that statement, if that means anything to you, still has an edge to it at the very least. Um, but the last paragraph, I, I I totally agree with the observation several of you are making. Uh, Mike uh, was just saying that um, uh, the uh, 
the mad violinist, absolutely, yes. That final statement, I, I, I see zero stark snark at all uh, in this last uh, paragraph. Um, not much, Barlaman, but every little helps. Notice what he's doing here. He is totally throwing Butterbur a lifeline now, right? He's just seen what has happened to Butterbur, right? Um, Butterbur, he, he knows. Butterbur has just had his world turned upside down, right? Butterbur is expressed goodwill, right? And good intentions. I will stand against the enemy, but holy cow, I'm standing against the enemy in the East. Like, I don't even know how to. And and what does Strider do? He immediately puts it into terms that it, he packages it for him so that he can get it, right? Okay, no, there's not much that you can do, right? There's, there's not, you know, you're not standing forth as the champion of of, of, of the West, right? Against, uh, against the shadow in the East. But there are some things that you can do and they are within your scope, right? Um, you can let Mr. Underhill stay here tonight as Mr. Underhill and forget the name of Baggins, right? Now, remember, that's just what Gandalf already told him to do. Like, they, Strider's not asking him to do anything. What Strider is doing is reminding him of what he was already planning to do, right? And sort of affirming that. Um, this is, this is, um, uh, th- what you were already thinking of doing, that is what you can do. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Kimber, I was, of course, thinking exactly the same of the, the, the troops that he sends to Kyra Andros later on. Right. Uh, giving them a manful deed that is within their scope. Yeah, that's that's exactly what he's doing for Butterbur here uh, as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, that's that's really that's an interesting perspective there, uh, Ambrosius. Um, we see Aragorn as one of the few people willing to appreciate the courage of small creatures like hobbits, uh, even if this knowledge grows over the course of the story. Uh, he says, "I read this as a first example of this, with him respecting the courage of Butterbur as far as it goes." Yes, um, he 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 is. Well, I don't think flexible is exactly the right way to say it, but but again, like he, uh, like the example with the 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 men that he sends off to retake Kyrandros, right? Um, he could be harsh. They're kind of like wanting to desert, right? They're being cowards. He could he could he could call them cowards, right? They don't have the nerve uh, to face up to what he has asked, what he is himself going to do, and what he's asked them to follow him. But he doesn't judge them, right? Instead of condemning them, instead of uh, uh, he he understands, right? He looks at them with pity, uh, and he sees that they are willing. They're just not able to do what he's asking them to do. So he gives them something to do that they are able to do, right? Um, to still affirm their willingness and to support their ability, right? And that I think is something that we can. I I, I agree. I see the same thing in uh, uh, in in his treatment of Butterbur here. Yeah. Good. Okay. So that was uh, <laughs> a good one passage we talked about there. Let's keep going. I'll do that, said Butterbur. But they'll find out he's here without help from me, I'm afraid. It's a pity Mr. Baggins drew attention to himself this evening to say no more. The story of that Mr. Bilbo's going off has been heard before tonight in Bree. Even our knob has been doing some guessing in his slow pate, and there are others in Bree quicker in the uptake than he is. Well, we can only hope the riders won't come back yet, said Frodo. 
I hope not indeed, said Butterbur. But spooks or no spooks, they won't get in the pony so easy. Don't you worry till the morning. Nobble say no word. No black man shall pass my doors while I can stand on my legs. Me and my folk will keep watch tonight, but you had best get some sleep if you can. Okay. This is just awesome. Isn't this awesome? So, I mean, here's Butterbur, right? Um, he fir- First we see him seizing the lifeline that Strider has thrown to him, right? I'll do that, right? Um, okay, yes, yes, that I can do. But then he goes beyond it, right? This is, and this is amazing, right? Spooks are no spooks. They won't get in the pony so easy. Spooks are no spooks. What a wonderful and a wonderfully revealing line that is, right? On the one hand, he now, he, he gets it. He, there was something uncanny about those, those, those black men, right? About those black riders to start with, uh, you know, black walkers, black individuals, right? Black cloaked people that you can't see anything but the black cloaks of. He knew there was something uncanny, like in the, with, the, with the dogs and the geese and, and Nob's hair all raised up on end and everything, right? There was something uncanny about them. Now he acknowledges um, they're spooks, right? They come from Mor- they're spooks sent from Mordor, right? Um, so the, these are he 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 now feels confident that these things are not even human, right? Not even like not really human. Anyway, they're spooks, right? But he doesn't care. Um, spooks are no spooks. They won't get in the pony so easy. Right? I'm going to keep them out even if they are spooks sent from Mordor. Um, having sort of balked, it seems, at this kind of prospect of himself set up against the shadow in the east, he now immediately is like, but that shadow is not going to get into the prancing pony as easy as it might think, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of fun, um, Mike, I don't... Somebody who has an e-text, look it up quick. Does the word spook... Is the word spook ever used elsewhere in The Lord of the Rings? I mean, as a as a noun in this way? Uh, I can't think of any other occasion. But somebody look it up and see if I've forgotten. Um... Yeah, Stephanie, he does sound almost like Tom Bombadil, right? Not quite Bombadil's confidence. Um, There's still, especially in the context of, you know, how unsettled he was just a, a couple seconds ago, there's sort of the air of him trying to encourage himself as well as Frodo, right? Um, but that by itself is, uh, um, that by itself is kind of interesting, right? Remember, this conversation has gone from Frodo saying, uh, you might be, you need to understand how much danger you're in if I'm here, right? Are you still willing to help me knowing that danger? And him saying, don't worry, right? Don't worry, Mr. Baggins. Uh, they will not pass my doors while I can stand on my legs. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. And it is, I think, a reflection of his hospitality, Mad Violinist. I, I, I definitely agree. Okay, Matthew confirms it's the only occurrence of the word spook. Okay, that's what I thought, but I couldn't remember for sure. Yeah, okay, good. Harnuth confirms the same thing. Good, good. Um, yeah, very good. Um, okay, let's see... 
Yeah, good. Excellent. Um, and I... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Tarlanio, you're right. He does have power on his own ground in a sense, right? Or at least he feels that he does. And Fourth Donalds was just saying this too, that, you know, he's kind of not wrong. Um, he, he does have some power over the Black Riders. Um, remember how encouraged they were, the hobbits were, when they heard the, the, the sounds of mirth and merriment from inside the, the common room, right? There's, there's a reason. They felt encouraged, but not just because they're like, oh, maybe the people here are friendly, right? But there's, there's something to that, I think. Um, yeah, there is something kind of Bombadilian about that. Again, he's not Bombadil, right? He, de- he, he definitely does not have the power of Bombadil. But, uh, uh, but nevertheless, I, I do think that there's, uh, there is some kind of, uh, some kind of factor there. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and I absolutely agree. Who is it? who was saying this, uh, earlier on. Oh Yeah. Arrowhead was pointing out how even Butterbur is kind of scathing about Frodo's ability to keep a low profile. Yeah. It's a pity Mr. Baggins drew attention to himself this evening to say no more, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, drew attention to himself is a, a very modest way of describing what actually happened there, right? Um, uh, even our knob has been doing some guessing in his slow pate, and there are others in breed quicker in the uptake. Um, and I love how he says knob will say no word later on, right? Like, ah, yeah, knob who has solved all the mysteries, right? I won't let knob spill the beans when he's just the previous paragraph said that, like, knob is not the first or the only one to make this kind of a guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, so that I think is really kind of interesting. But notice what he doesn't do is regret his. Uh, one of the things that Strider was grumpy about was the fact that Butterbur had. And that's what Strider is harsh with him about at the very beginning, right? Um, and a lot of trouble would would have been saved if you had let him in, you know, uh, Barlaman. Um, yeah, yeah. Ooh, that is interesting. Matt DeForest says, Spook doesn't appear to enter English until the late 1800s. Really? Oh my goodness. That is, a, that is the words of yesterday, right? That Tolkien had Butterbur use a word that was as new as that? That is shocking. That is shocking. Wow. Wow. Yeah, no, Brunier neither does express train. It's true, but um, but of course, most most you know, mostly we make exceptions for that, right? Because he was still doing the Hobbit narrator thing at that point. But Aragorn, that's exactly what I was thinking too. Uh, that's the narrator, and this is in dialogue, right? This is character speaking, and I agree that's a that does make that does make a big difference. Um, yeah, wow. 
Barely a hundred years old. Less than a hundred years old. I'm shocked. It's possible, Tilly, and Tillian is suggesting it's is it possible that spook is a modern narrator's attempt at translating an ancient word? Um it's possible. It's possible. Um so oh Tim it's uh it's from German? Spook? It's from German? It's gonna be my guess. Sounds certainly doesn't sound Latinate. It's possible, but still Tolkien oh, oh still almost never does that. Um, still almost never does that using modern words in the Lord of the Rings that is um, yeah anyway that's cool alright that actually would be an interesting challenge as we go through right let's uh, let's um, let's uh, let's see if we can see if we can find any more of those right how many modern words can we find as we go along um that would be uh that would be fun it'd be fun um yeah okay several people are saying it's from dutch yeah <laughs> no offense to the dutch same thing right that is to say it's germanic and not latinate is the main it was was, was my main question um uh yeah yeah um yeah, I'm not trying to say that Dutch and German are identical. I'm just saying it's uh, we're 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 swimming in the same pool here from a linguistic standpoint, and that's that's what I'm uh, uh, what I'm what I what I'm interested in now, huh? Um, Wagner used the word Tim. No way, really. Well, that's very interesting, huh? huh. Anyway, okay. Sure. I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm. I'm not gonna think about spook anymore. Even though that is very interesting, and I, and I want to. If we bring together a few of those, we might be able to think a little bit more about this as far as patterns of usage. Of course, normally, this is not a thing that we would be very concerned about, right? But this is Tolkien. This is different, right? Uh, that that is noteworthy when Tolkien uses a modern, uh, uh, a modern, <laughs> a modern word like that. Anyway, back to Butterbur. And Butterbur's boldness and Butterbur's, I think, outright teasing of Frodo here, right? And and open criticism of Frodo. Now that he knows what was going on, now he's like, okay, I now fully understand how ridiculous that was, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, back in the common room. Um, me and my folk will keep watch tonight. Okay. In any case, we must be called at dawn, said Frodo. We must get off as early as possible. Breakfast at 6.30, please. Right, I'll see to the orders, said the landlord. Good night, Mr. Baggins. Uh, Underhill, I should say. Good night. And now, bless me, where's your Mr. Brandybuck? I don't know, said Frodo with sudden anxiety. They had forgotten all about Mary, and it was getting late. I am afraid he is out. He said something about going for a breath of air. "'Well, you do want looking after, and no mistake. "'Your party might be on a holiday,' said Butterbur. "'I must go and bar the doors quick, "'but I'll see your friend is let in when he comes. "'I'd better send Nob to look for him. "'Good night to you all.' 
At last, Mr. Butterbur went out, and with another doubtful look at Strider and a sh- sorry, with another doubtful look at Strider and a shake of his head, his footsteps retreated down the passage. Um. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Mad violinist is summarizing. Uh. Uh. So let me get this straight. You're on the run from Agents of Mordor and you do your table dance while others of your parties go on walkabout. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's exactly it. Yeah, this is uh, uh, they do. They do want looking after and no mistake. There's no really, really no two ways about that. Good. Blue Wizard is pointing out how now he he says, bless me. Right. Uh, Save us before and bless me now. Hmm. More and more. I'm thinking about. um, more and more, I'm thinking about a. Uh, uh, it kind of seems and it's still theoretically possible that that could be political. Kings can give blessings as well as uh, uh, gods or angels, but it's still that sounds increasingly theological to me. I'd have to say, um, but anyway, I love Fr- Frodo. Seems to be trying to take charge of things here, right? Uh, notice how Frodo doesn't attempt to rebut anything that Butterbur has said. Uh, he just says, um, uh, he just, you know, speaks authoritatively. In any case, he says, right, we must be called at dawn. We must get off as early as possible. Breakfast at 6.30, please. Um, even this is adorable, right? Here's Frodo. This is extreme, right? This is, this is uh, when you really intend to efficiently leave town agents uh, you know undead agents of the enemy are hunting you uh uh the most disreputable people in town probably know your secret they may already be in the pay of uh these uh as far as far as you have reason to suspect they're already in the pay of these you know ghostly these spooks right in the servant uh in in the service of mordor what do you do, right? You better leave town fast, right? You've got to get out at the first possible opportunity. You'd better order breakfast at 6.30, right? Because then that's, if you have, because if you are, if breakfast, they serve breakfast, if you're sitting down to breakfast at 6.30, you could probably be finished your breakfast by, I don't know what, like, if you rushed, maybe like by 7.15, and that way you could probably get on the road by like quarter to eight, right? So you could be on the road by quarter to eight. Man, the bad guys are not going to have any chance of catching you if you sit down to breakfast at 6.30. I mean, man, that's just uh, that's just awesome, right? Uh, <laughs> I can just Frodo. Yeah, no, man, this probably calls for even more extreme and more extreme action. Yeah, exactly, Tom. You might get out the door by the crack, by the crack of nine. <laughs> exactly. Um, this is, uh, this is, this is just, this, this is just funny. I, 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 it's, it's really hard not to make fun of Frodo, uh, during all this. And I don't think that that's, the point necessarily right i don't think that we're supposed to be mocking frodo in um uh in the this whole business right um i think we're you know 
but we certainly see that this guy is not is not a professional <laughs> right um and seems to to la- to lack any real understanding of this and he was the one saying to butterbur like you're in danger. I want you to understand how much danger you're in. And he doesn't really seem to have internalized it either, as then immediately emphasized by the fact that Mary has gone out for a nocturnal stroll through the streets by himself, right? I'm just going to go walk in the streets of Brie at night by myself because I want a little air, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 hmm. How do you pronounce that? Kermirag? Kermirag. I like it. Kermirag, yes, it was just saying, the Kermirag, I should emphasize. Uh, It was just said that uh, Aragorn must be (laughs) wondering just what Gandalf has gotten him into with these ridiculous hobbits. They're dancing and they're walkabouts. I know, right? I mean, uh, yeah. If he, Aragorn, was assessing them as well during this, I mean, this, this is not, this is looking... This is looking worse and worse. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, Erekeb, you're right that Frodo and company are armed by the time they get to Bree, right? Unlike other traveling parties we could mention, it's true that Thorin and company did not seem to be carrying any weapons um, when they passed through Bree. But it isn't their fault, right? That is to say, it's not any virtue of Frodo and company. It's not through any forward thinking of themselves or advanced planning on their part that led to their being armed at this point. They were given them by Tom Bombadil, right? Tom Bombadil has supplied the deficiency uh, from the Barrow. So, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) I'm afraid he is out. Oh, man. Um The last thing Butterbird does is give a doubtful look at Strider and a shake of his head, right? He is still not convinced. There's a sense in which, right, you can see Aragorn and Butterbur kind of almost, maybe, um, you know, bearing the hatchet there at the end. Um, but, uh, um, at least from Strider's perspective, how gentle he was being with Butterbur and how much he seemed to respect what Butterbur was wanting to do and trying to do. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is sort of the levels of of kind of awareness that's going on here, right? Here's Frodo talking to Butterbur. And here's Butterbur saying to Frodo, but you people... Right. You you guys might be on a holiday. Do you have any idea what you're doing? Right. Oh, like you do want looking after. No mistake. Right. Um, you've got to think that here's Strider listening to Butterbur saying spooks or no spooks. They won't get in the pony so easy. Um, remember what he just said to the hobbits. Right. They are terrible. Right. And he's rem- looks like he's in pain and remembering something horrible and saying, ah, you know, OK, you don't you don't fear these uh, these these writers enough. Right. He's got to be listening to Butterbur uh, promising to keep watch. Right. And thinking that uh, Butterbur, Knob and Bob, whether Bob be Hobbit or human, um, yeah, really, the three of them are going to keep the ring wraiths out of the out of the prancing pony. Um, so again, here's you know Frodo 
seems to not really be fully processing things. Butterbur gets it better, right? Butterbur is able to show him a thing or two. And then here's Strider got a piece standing there like, oh man, none of these, none of these guys <laughs> really, really understand. Um, but um, so that's really interesting. But again, you notice how everything has been opening out. Notice the change in Butterbur as well, right? He asked what, what's all this, you know, What's going on? Uh, and now he feels that he knows. He still doesn't know why Frodo's leaving. He doesn't know why the servants of Mordor are pursuing uh, Frodo. But he at least he knows what's happening. These are spooks. These are servants of Mordor. Uh, and this is my house. This is my inn. And I'm going to protect it. Uh, and this is because these are my guests and I'm not going to let my guests be disturbed um, even by spooks from Mordor. So yes, the old stories are kind of coming true all around him in his daily world. Now it's, you know, the, there's like the, 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 a, a figure from one of those stories just knocked on the door of his inn, you know, a couple days back. Um, but uh, but so, but now having kind of accepted that, he's he's almost in a sense sort of naturalized that, right? Eric Heb, you're right. Butterbur knows what he needs to do to be a good host, and that's what matters to him, right? He's there's a sense in which he is putting, um, he is he is putting the servants of Mordor within his uh, uh, context, right? Um, okay, I know how to keep my guests safe. Right. Make sure that no undesirables get into the prancing pony and disturb my guests in their beds. Right. Okay. So um, I can uh, I can do that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, But he's still doubtful about Strider. Strider has not earned his trust. Strider obviously knows a thing or two and he believes him. He doesn't doubt it. Which is an, a, a, an interesting thing, right? When Strider tells him they come from Mordor, from Mordor, Barlamin, right? He doesn't. He he does not say, "Oh, come on," right? Frodo, are you going to believe what this ranger tells you? Right? Notice there's not a whiff of that. He accepts everything that Strider tells him, but yet at the end here, he's still looking doubtfully at Strider and shaking his head. And I have to think that he is viewing this as yet another example, right? Just in case uh, uh, Butterbur was not fully convinced that Frodo's an idiot, right? This seals it, right? He's going to take up with that Strider, right? Oh, man. Okay, that's going to end well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, JJ, I agree, is disreputable, but not necessarily dishonest. I think that must be the case. Um, it, there, it doesn't even seem to occur to Butterbur to question uh, Strider's words, which, again, I, 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 find, that, I find that interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and you're right that he can tell a, a rare tale when he has a mind to. Tom, right? So there is a sense in which he acknowledges that um, uh, that Strider has knowledge, right? That he knows a thing or two. Maybe even the fact that he 
some of the old tales that Butterbur has heard about ancient days and about Baradur and about the enemy might have been told him by Strider himself, right? Um, perhaps, you know, maybe that contributes to the fact that he would, he, Butterbur, seems to sort of accept Strider as an authority on these things, right? That seems possible. Yeah, giving him credibility now, Tom, is exactly, exactly what I was thinking there, too. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Let's talk about the letter. I know I'm late, but I started late, so that's fine. Let's 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 look at the letter. Um, ooh, Lincoln. That is a really interesting observation. Lincoln says that that puts an interesting spin on if that name means anything to you. Yes, if Strider himself has told stories that have featured Mordor, um, that would make it a bit more of it that would that that would raise it on the snark scale right um if that means if you even remember the story that i told you six months ago right um yeah that that certainly would that certainly would um yeah yeah Hmm. Blue Wizard asks a really good question. Okay, folks who have the OED right there. When did the word holiday uh, take on its modern definition, its modern usage as vacation? When did people start using the word holiday in that way? It was a little while ago, at least. Anyway. Tell me when that usage dates from. Uh, because, of course, this is not the only usage of holiday in that sense, right? Bilbo says it back in Chapter 1, right? Um, he wants to go on a permanent holiday, right? Um, uh, Frodo sees it as a kind of holiday. The word, of course... From Holy Day, Blue Wizard, I mean, that always meant a day in which you don't work, right? So holiday as a day off of work is a, is a that, that I know to be a medieval usage. Um, but uh, but that, sen- that specific sense of to go on a holiday, right? Um, to go on holiday, to go away on vacation. Um, Sixteenth century. Okay. All right. Hmm. Mid nineteenth is the school holidays. Yeah, yeah, that would have been. So that's like you know, uh, in the halls, right? As uh, you know, like the Pevensies would say in in Narnia books. Um, yeah. Yeah, but no, but the usage here is not just cessation from work. The usage is specifically to go away on a pleasure trip, right? Um during the time that you to take time off and to go away on a pleasure trip, right? That's the that's the um Yeah. Um Mid-19th century is when it became a verb. 
Yeah, they don't use it as a verb. I can't remember it ever being used as a verb in The Lord of the Rings. Or The Hobbit, for that matter, but... Okay. Um, yeah, it does not surprise me that he's not, he wouldn't use the word vacation. Uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. No, obviously, he's not going to use that word. Anyway, it's... Hey, even in, you know, the 20th century, holiday was the, the, the word they used, you know, uh, uh, in England. Um, anyway, let's let's look at the, the letter. Well, said Strider, when are you going to open that letter? Frodo looked carefully at the seal before he broke it. Can I also just say, um, Strider is being fairly gentle to Frodo here, right? Strider's, I mean, that last sequence was pretty embarrassing. For, it's got to be pretty embarrassing for Frodo, right? Just when Frodo thought things couldn't get more embarrassing, now, like, Mary's out, and, like, this looks really, really bad. Um, and Strider gently changes the subject, right? When are you going to open that letter? Frodo looked carefully at the seal before he broke it. It seemed certainly to be Gandalf's. Inside, written in the wizard's strong but graceful script, was the following message. The Prancing Pony, Bree. Mid-Year's Day, Shire Year, 1418. Dear Frodo, Bad news has reached me here. I must go off at once. You had better leave Bag End soon and get out of the Shire before the end of July at latest. I will return as soon as I can, and I will follow you if I find that you are gone. Leave a message for me here if you pass through Bree. You can trust the landlord, Butterbur. You may meet a friend of mine on the road, a man lean, dark, tall, by some called Strider. He knows our business and will help you. Make for Rivendell. There I hope we may meet again. If I do not come, Elrond will advise you. Yours in haste, Gandalf. Um, okay. What do you notice about Gandalf's letter here? Um, first of all, note the date. Right? He wrote this letter on Midyear's Day, in Shire year 1418. Um, what does that mean? So Mid-Year's Day, uh, if you have studied your, if you're, if you're up on your Appendix D, you will know, I think it's D, or is it C? I can't even remember. Uh, I think it's D. If you're up on your Appendix D, um, then you will know that, no, it's not the solstice. Um, Mid-Year's Day is a special day in the Shire calendar. So in the Shire calendar, all months have 30 days. Uh, there are no 31-day months in the Shire calendar. All of the months have 30 days. And then the rest of the days in the calendar, uh, which are five, right? So 30 months times uh, 30 days times 12 months is 360 days. The other five days in the calendar are made up by the two days of Yule. So there are two days of Yule, and there are the three days, uh, uh, well, the, the three days of the life, right? So there's Mid-Year's Day, and there's the day before and the day after. So there's that whole life, that whole Mid-Year's uh, uh, Midsummer celebration season, which comes between June and July, right? Between the sixth month and the seventh month. 
Um, and then on leap years, there's a fourth day of life, which they call overlife, right? And those are not in any month, so so those uh, those don't count as any of the thirty days uh, of those uh, um, of those of those months. So, um, we're we're talking about end of June, beginning of July. So when he dating his letter on Mid Year's Day tells Frodo. Um, get out of the Shire before the end of July at latest. He's telling him, leave within a month, right? Um, the end of July is one month from the day that he wrote that letter, essentially. Um, so, okay. Uh, so what does that show us? First of all, what, what conclusions can we draw about Gandalf's state, right? It's very... Um, it's very... A lot of people kind of harsh on Gandalf here, right? And I will admit the criticism that Gandalf leaves himself open to in his decision process here to leave and go from Bree down to Isengard as he does is something which is made, I think, frankly, ridiculous in the film. Um, It was one of, I remember it was one of the very first difficulties that I had. Uh, It was the first moment, I think, the first I'm pretty sure it was uh, the first moment in the Fellowship of the Ring film um, that I kind of reared back and was like, that really doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, and and that's like the way that they presented in the film where he leaves them at bag end. like Gandalf knows that that the Nazgul are coming and he's right there with. Frodo, and he's got a perfectly good horse right there. And he's like, okay, all right, uh, the ring raids could be here any minute. So you guys walk over land by yourselves. I'm going to take my horse in a different direction, and I'm going to ride. I think that we might be able to get some assistance from the enemies, which are right here in the neighborhood. So I'm going to ride weeks in the opposite direction and leave you alone. Okay. And that should work out. I mean, the way it, the, the sequence of how they present it in the, in the Peter Jackson film is just utterly, utterly irrational. Like I, I, it's, it doesn't make any sense even a little bit. Um, but, uh, here it's different, right? Um, things are not quite so bad, uh, for Gandalf as that, um, he has heard that, the um, uh, he has heard that the Black Riders have left Mordor, right, and may be coming, right. Um, but he does not expect them any time. He tells Frodo to leave before the end of July. He doesn't notice he doesn't say flee at once, right? Like, don't pack. Don't worry about like leaving a trip. Just go instantly. Nor does he turn around, dash to the Shire, and go with Frodo right away. He clearly believes they've got a bunch of time, right? It's not going to be any time soon that the Black Riders are going to get near the Shire. And of course, he's perfectly right. Right, the Black Riders do not get to the Shire until se- until late September. Um, so he was completely right. If it, he Frodo can still have another month, right, to finish getting ready. But as long as he leaves by the end of July, even if he dawdles on the way, right, um, let's say it takes him a full month to get to Rivendell, which would be a long trip, right? I mean, that would be taking his time, right? Um, but let's say it takes him an entire month 
to get from Bag End or even from, uh, you know, from Buckland uh, to Rivendell. If he leaves by the end of July, he gets there by the end of August, right? So he still beats the Black Riders to Rivendell by more than a month. So Gandalf was correct, right? His his assessment that it wasn't urgent, he didn't have to dash back with Frodo right away, he was right, right? Um, that Frodo would be okay if he left by the end of July, he's perfectly right, right? Um, uh yeah, that's all. That 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 all actually makes that works out. It makes per- the only problem is that he's delayed in returning. He thought. Notice the timeline as he's projecting. He does not assume he can make it back from Isengard in a month, right? He's told Frodo leave by the end of July. Um, I will return as soon as I can, and I will follow you if I find that you're gone. He's hoping to find him gone. He clearly does not expect to get back to the Shire within a month. Possibly not sooner than in a couple months. But Frodo should be safe in Rivendell. The road's not that dangerous, right? He's hoping to have Strider looking out for him. And if he leaves in July, he should be fine, right? And he would have been fine. Um, But we can see he does mean to come back as quickly as he can. But it's not going to be all that quick. Um, he doesn't rule out the fact that he's going to get there. He's going to catch up with him before he arrives in Rivendell, right? So again, assuming that Frodo has probably less than, say, maybe three to four weeks from the Shire to Rivendell by, you know, normal pony travel down the, down the road, um, uh, he's giving himself... Clearly, he expects to be back within six to eight weeks, right? That seems to be the time frame that Gandalf has in mind. So that seems to be the calculation. Um, that seems to be the calculation that Gandalf is making when he's sitting there in Bree. Okay, the Black Riders are coming. This is seriously bad news, right? This is the worst news that's come to Bree in Butterbur's time. But, but... I've got eight weeks, right? Can I fit in a a trip to to Isengard in this time? Might be worth it, right? We'll get to that later on. We'll get to the account of his discussion with Radagast and everything. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, right? That's in the council. But but here we know at least that he was planning to go on a journey, which, again, by his own estimates here, would seem to be he was expecting was going to take him six to eight weeks round trip, right? Um, if he believes that there's a good chance that he will catch up with them on the road. He doesn't seem to think he's going to get there in time to catch them before they leave. He hopes not, right, if they leave on time. Um, uh, so does Gandalf fear Saruman at this point? No, no. Uh, um, he can't. He can't. Um, yeah. Uh, Matthew asks, does this also mean... Um, uh, does this also mean that Strider has been hanging around Bree for three months looking out for Frodo and company? Yeah, probably. Well, we don't know exactly when Strider came back. He wasn't there when Gandalf left, right? So we know that Strider was not in Bree at midyear, right, on midyear's day. Um, he's arrived at Bree since then. How long since then is not 100% clear. Um interesting that um, 
he doesn't talk to Butterbur, right? Um, because Butterbur doesn't trust him and he knows it, mm-hmm. right? Um, so he doesn't approach Butterbur as mutual friend of Gandalf, right? Um, yeah, so we don't know exactly how long Strider has been around, but for a little bit, anyway. Yes, waiting to see if Frodo would come out. Okay. Um, what else? What else do I want to emphasize about the letter here? Um, I love Butterbur in parentheses. You can trust the landlord. Butterbur. Right? Um, notice the... I think that Tolkien does a really good job of conveying the hurry that Gandalf is in when he's writing this, right? This is not a well-composed letter. Um, Notice the way that the sentences kind of string together. Bad news has reached me here. I must go off at once. You had better leave Bag End soon and get out of the Shire before the end of July at latest. Um, that is, that, that's one example that I would point to of where it seems like what he started off saying, he changed how he was going to say it halfway through the sentence, right? He's not planned this out, this letter. He's not drafted this in his head, right? You'd better leave Bag End soon, is this his spontaneous thing. But then he realizes, having said you'd better leave Bag End soon, wait, that's not quite enough. I need to specify more. And get out of the Shire before the end of July at latest. Right, so he's he's okay. All right, I I need to clarify. Um, I will return as soon as I can, and I will follow you if I find that you are gone. Leave a message for me here if you pass through Bree. You can trust the landlord. And then he's like, wait, okay, but I should specify his name is Butterbur, right? So he puts Butterbur in parentheses after the sentence. You can trust the landlord, right? Um. I really like that clarification. Was there much of a risk that Frodo was going to be confused about who the landlord was in Bree, right? Um, leave a message for me here if you pass through Bree. The Prancing Pony is where here is because he, he, he addressed the letter from there, right? Um, so again... Um, you know, much of a much of a chance that that Frodo is going to mistake who the landlord is. It almost makes me wonder if uh, he does. He think that there's going to be some fraud perpetrated upon Frodo. Uh, I don't know, but like I said, this this strikes me as um, um, this this. This strikes me as 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 possible uh, that he is. I don't know. I don't. I don't mean doubtful of Butterbur. Um, that he doesn't know what things are going to look like when they come through. I mean, who knows, right? He again. He can't fear too much yet, or he would go back to the Shire and get Frodo himself, as he says in the Council, right? Um, but yeah, Tilligan, it does seem that Gandalf and Aragorn are worried about traps by the enemy. Um, 
<laughs> Aragorn is wondering if he, uh, he's worried that Frodo would think that Nob or somebody was the landlord. <laughs> right, because because they're hobbits. Maybe, maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah, Oakwig, I agree. Oakwig is saying that he wonders if the reason Butterbur couldn't find anyone to go to the Shire the next day or the day after uh, is because of those two days being live, right? Yeah, being part of the... Do they keep the same calendar in Bree? They do keep a very similar calendar in Bree, right? Um, so they were probably having... Um, so yeah, is it just the fact that it happens to be a holiday? Um, I, I got a calendar holiday, not a vacation holiday. It happens to be a calendar holiday that Gandalf is writing this letter. And so when he says to Butterbur, make it tomorrow, right? Wait, seriously? The second day of live? That's your plan, Gandalf? That's when I'm supposed to... Somebody's going to leave town, you know, on the second day of live and, and go to the Shire? Not likely. Yeah, I wonder. That does seem That does seem probable. Um, I love the fact that um, Gandalf's circumlocution sounds just like Frodo and Strider's circumlocutions from earlier on, right? He knows our business and will help you. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, what do you know about me and my business? Frodo has just asked him. If I do not come, Elrond will advise you. Why does Gandalf say that at the end? I hope we may meet again. There I hope we may meet again. So, there I hope we may meet again. I, that, I have to think, means that's going to be our rendezvous point, right? Because I don't want you waiting around for me. Don't wait in the Shire. Don't wait at the Prancing Pony get your way to Rivendell, right? So I'll look for you in the Shire and I'll look for you in Bree, but assuming I don't catch up with you in any of those places, I'm going to follow you to Rivendell and I, I'm hoping that you're going to get there before me, right? So there I hope we may meet again. Doesn't sound... I mean, you can take that, right? I hope we may meet again as sounding pretty ominous, right? Um, like he knows he's going into dreadful danger and in the context, there's not much reason to, for him to think that he's necessarily going into horrible danger. But again, I, it's not how I read that line. I read that line as, there I hope we may meet again. Again, he's setting the rendezvous point, right? I will meet you in Rivendell. If I do not come, Elrond will advise you. That sentence, though, is a little bit more puzzling. Um... Seaforth Dauntless, I don't think Gandalf is necessarily worried that he might run into the Nazgul on the road. If he'd thought that, they were as close as that. Again, I don't think he leaves. But, hmm. Let's think about this for a second. This is risky because we're jumping ahead, right, to what Gandalf's going to tell us in the Council of Elrond. But, um, but why is he going? It's true, Amali, that the roads are just dangerous, right? I mean, you never know. But, but I think there's more to it than that. Why is he going? Why is he going 
to Isengard, right? He's going to Isengard because Saruman has said, right, that if he has need, he can consult with him in Isengard. <clears throat> and Gandalf says in the Council of Elrond that he thought that possibly Saruman had found something that would help to hold back the Nine. Right? Isn't that his phrasing? Very close to that. We know what's going to happen in Isengard, but forget about that for a second. What does Gandalf think is going to happen to him in Isengard? I think he thinks that he's going to go down to Isengard and that he and Saruman are going to team up and that the two of them are going to oppose the Nazgul. So the black, the Nazgul have come west across the river and they're hunting through the lands. They, Gandalf and Saruman, right? The wizards are going to team together and they're going to, what, try to drive away the Nazgul? That seems totally reasonable, right? I mean, after all, he and Saruman team together with an assist, you know, from Galadriel and Elrond, but still they drove Saruman out of Mirkwood, or kind of, sort of, drove him out, right? Thought they drove him out. But anyway, right, it's the kind of thing that they do. The White Wizards getting together, and I'm using White Wizards in the Hobbit sense, right, when we hear that uh, phrase used in Chapter 16. Um, they, 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 17, sorry. It's the beginning of 17, not the end of 16. Um, they, 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 the wizards get together and they gang up and they oppose, uh, they oppose the enemy, right? This also would explain why Gandalf goes. Why does he ride for several weeks in the opposite direction of the Shire at this point? Even if he thinks correctly that it will be months before the Black Riders get here, why would he even take that risk? Uh, answer. Because he could do something about it, right? Uh, if he goes and gets Frodo and tries to escort Frodo to Rivendell, he might be able to help Frodo either avoid or resist the Nazgul were they to find them, right? But it would be even better if he and Saruman could team up maybe with others, right? Who knows? Saruman's the head of the council. Who knows what he's got, what he's put together, right? And it's Radagast who comes to tell him um, as if Radagast is gathering up the posse, right? So, okay, so maybe the good guys are all getting together, right? That This is an emergency, right? The Nazgul have crossed the river. The enemy is on the move, right? So we're going to, and we're going to stop it, right? We're going to oppose them. Uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to we're going to chase them all the way back we're going to send them back across the river right we're not going to have the nazgul going hither and thither in the land right um and that is the best way to safeguard frodo right, frodo's going to be way safer with gandalf and saruman teaming up to resist the nazgul than he would be if gandalf were just simply escorting him right um yeah yeah um and no, we never are told exactly who is on the White Council. That's left relatively vague. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, um, 
it's it does Turtle on the it does sound like going off to fight the necromancer part two, and that's appropriate. That's a good response here. If Saruman were a good guy, it's totally what he should be doing, right? This is exactly what the head of the council should be doing. Um, so, um, so anyway, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, you know, could, does he think, does he have reason to think that Saruman can do that? Of course they do. Saruman is the head of the council that chased Sauron out of Mirkwood, right? So, of course, he could do it. Would he do it? Well, yeah, he did before, right? And this is this is what's happening. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's it's plausible, it's efficient, right? It's Gandalf-like, right? He finds out that there's trouble, so he chooses instead to go to ride to meet it instead of waiting for it to come to him, right? That seems that seems uh, that seems fine. Matthew points out that Gandalf has already abandoned a Baggins with a ring in order to fight the necromancer. I hadn't even thought of that, Matthew, but that's a lovely little parallel, right? Just as he left Bilbo on his own with the dwarves in order to go down and kick the necromancer out of Mirkwood, so he is now leaving uh, uh, leaving Frodo on his own with his companions and hopefully Strider in order to go uh, and resist the approach. Right, the incursion of the Nazgul. I think it works. I think it works. Um, yeah, <laughs> this is definitely before Sar- Saruman turns into a Balrog. Yeah, yeah, that's totally not happened yet. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so, so this. Uh, so that uh, I'm getting to all of this in trying to parse that last sentence if i do not come elrond will advise you yeah the roads are dangerous and you know on any given day you never know what's going to happen uh but i don't think that's the point i don't i don't think he's just saying like lord willing i will be there right or you know lord willing and the crick don't rise right that, that's not that's not it i think that this he seems he's speaking as if he's going off into danger Right. As if he has some reasonable expectation that he might possibly not survive. Um, And so he wants to alert Frodo of that possibility and to make sure that Frodo knows what to do. Right. And where he should be going. Um, And his answer is Elrond Elrond will back me up. Right. He he will be my backup advisor uh, uh, if I don't make it. Right. Um, So. uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Apologies. So the reference to Saruman turning into a Balrog, that's a that's a Treason of Isengard reference in the Mythgard Academy class uh, in the manuscript. One of the manuscripts of the Balrog scene at the beginning there, uh, uh, Tolkien toyed with the idea of having it turn out to really be Saruman. Um, so, yeah, we're, it's that's a that's a. Uh, uh, sort of a joke from that rather shocking suggestion that Tolkien made when he was uh, brainstorming there. Um, yeah, so uh, Omali, I agree. Um, Gandalf sensed that he himself, he Gandalf, was in danger. That's very much what I read in that last sentence. And that's why I'm thinking he is thinking he's doing something risky. Right, that he's about, to, and and what do I think he's doing? I think that he sees himself as I'm going to go and form the frontline defense against the Nazgul. Right, um, we're going to go stand up to him, and we're going to drive them back. And there's a non-zero chance we might get our butts kicked. Right, so Frodo, listen to Elrond if I don't make it. Right, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, good. Um, Let's see. 
Do we think that Gandalf is planning a stop in Rivendell? Uh, no. No, 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 he's not. Um, how much does Elrond know? How much has Elrond been told? Has he written any letters to Elrond? You know, has he kept Elrond posted? Uh, no, I don't know that he has at all. Um, uh, what does that, how much does Elrond already know about the ring? How much is Gandalf? Now, Gandalf has had years. Remember, it's been 17 years since Bilbo went away. Uh, during that time, I cannot imagine that Gandalf has not had some frank discussions with, uh, uh, with Elrond about the whole, about his doubts and fears about the ring. In fact, we see this explicitly, um, in the, of the rings of power in the third age, uh, section of the Silmarillion at the end. Now that's written late, right? It's written after the Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, so it's not, it's, it isn't evidence that predates this stuff, right? But nevertheless, it certainly does show uh, that Gandalf and Elrond have that kind of relationship, right? So um, I see every reason to think he has been open with Elrond about his own doubts and fears. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, so Elrond will be able to advise him in general, but again, I don't think Elrond is in is in the dark. Um, yeah. Now, uh, Tim, you're right that in the Council of Elrond, um, Gandalf reveals, you know, the story of, you know, the ring's subsequent history and stuff. But I, and I don't think there's any reason to think that Elrond himself is hearing that for the first time at the Council. Um We'll get there. We'll get there. By, well, by Christmas? Maybe by Christmas. We'll see. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to be doing a lot of traveling in the fall this year, it looks like. So who knows? Um, Yeah, Rendell, it is interesting to think of, right? To imagine uh, uh, if Elrond knew nothing about it at all, right? And this strange hobbit shows up and he's like, uh, yeah, so Gandalf says this is Sauron's ring of power. Uh, what do I do? Right. Um, that would be uh, an interesting kind of situation, right? Um, I think Elrond is wise enough to handle it, even if it were to fall out like that. Um, but I don't see much reason to think it's going to fall out like that. Okay. So I'm going to stop there. Now, we're not done with the letter. We still have all the postscripts, but the postscripts include poetry. So I'm not even going to try, right? I want to make sure to have uh, uh, plenty of time to talk about the all that is gold does not glitter poem. So I'm going to save this for next time. So we will start um, with Gandalf's postscripts. Uh, in uh, in class next time. And again, I think the postscripts are also very revealing about Gandalf's kind of frame of mind as he's writing, uh, as he's writing the letter there. So, okay. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to the postscripts uh, next. Yes. Yes. Next week. So next week I should be here. Um, I am leaving for England soon afterwards, but I will, I will be able to be here next Tuesday night. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, very good. Um, okay. So, 
Uh, so I will see you guys next week. So thank you guys. Oh, it's, it's field trip time. So let's uh, let's uh, uh, let's uh, get ready for our field trip here. I'm going to say good night to the folks on Twitter. Thanks for joining us here this evening, uh, and uh, feel free to uh, switch over and join us on Twitch, Twitch.tv/signumu, uh, for our field trip in Lotro as we continue to uh, explore the landscape of the game and thinking about its adaptation and connection. Uh, with Tolkien's story. We're up in Angmar tonight, uh, thinking about the Angmar story. So, um, Oh, yeah, I, Matt, I did see the dates on holiday as vacation. Thank you. Yeah, mid-19th century, right? Crazy. Crazy. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. So I'm going to say bye to the Twitter folks. Thanks, everybody. Let's see. Come on. We're gonna... All right. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. So the final verdict was 19th century for uh, for, usage or- for holiday. Yeah, yeah. It looks like uh, first used as vacation um, in uh, in yeah mid mid 19th century. Apparently, thanks. The yeah. the what plan I was looking at was very vague. It said the meeting started to separate 16th century, but I don't know what that fully yeah, meant. Well, so. the meeting uh, meaning as like the to. to the more secular concept of holiday, like when holiday ceased to be, ceased to really mean a holy day. The holy day, on, which, account, you know, yeah. yeah, which, which was quite a long time. If I was right, if memory, is. we didn't right. really have national holidays for quite a while. Right. Exactly. But the concept of like the idea that to go on holiday means to go on vacation is, uh, and that would make sense with the 19th century because that's when time off from school no longer meant you just had to work in a different way out in the fields. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Or chop wood to keep the fire from going out. It actually was leisure at that point. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, JJ, you're right. right. Holiday and spooks are our two modern uh, modern word usages from the spike and so. spooking. Yeah. There we go. All right. Okay. So... We're, let's 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 get out to horseback because we have to take a slow horse because we're going back to O'Hare. And I always hear it as O'Hare, like O'Hare Airport. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of times it sounds like that. I think that the GH that's supposed to be the H sound, isn't it? Is it the H or is it the L? Bit. I don't know. I think it's. Well, I mean, you could say Al-Khair, but that's really hard to say. You still uh, need to know what your tongue's doing, though. Is it against the teeth? Is it against the roof of your mouth? What's it doing? Uh, neither, really. I mean, because, like, your <laughs> your tongue isn't really inv- – I mean, like, the tip of your tongue isn't really involved in saying <laughs> right? It is in the Welsh – it is in the Welsh one. Yeah? But, yes, it is. How do you do that? You make it like you're going to do the letter L and then make the oh, sound. So instead, oh, yeah, middle yeah, of yeah, the yeah, like like the right yeah. the the double L in Welsh, right? Yeah, the double L. Yeah, but that that's more a way of of terminating that consonantal sound, really, right? That's yes, that's true. But yeah. one is using the tip of the tongue, and the other is using the middle of the tongue. Right. Right. I think far too much about this kind of stuff. I don't know. Well, the, <laughs> yeah, that, that double L sound, but that's really. My point, though, is that that's really two consonantal sounds, rather mm-hmm. than a different one, right? It's it's the. So this this one's more. So is it more of a guttural stop then, or is it supposed to be a definite consonant? I 
Well, not really a glottal stop though either. Um, I mean, the GH. If we're, I mean, if we're, if we're pronouncing it consistently, right? The GH should be like the GH in gosh, right? <laughs> uh, Maybe it's supposed to be the GH and GH like in tough. No. <laughs> well. No. Oh fair. Oh fair. <laughs> I can't believe that. Uh, it's not in the realm of impossibility. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. I, I broke you for a minute. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I mean, at least okay. not, not according to the pronunciation, you know, to Tolkien's pronunciation charts. Um, yeah, th- that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. But right, there's no two ways about it. <laughs> this this town, the name of this village, is one of the most challenging to pronounce, and most like this is like the one place in Lotro that like you talk mm-hmm. to two Lotro people, and they're guaranteed to pronounce it differently. <laughs> it's yeah, certainly it's not a, it's more challenging than Farokal. Yes, yes. Tananunanundir. Yeah. It all depends on how far away I'm sitting from the screen. That that's where it usually <laughs> comes into that. Right, right. It's like it's like reading a Dostoevsky novel. Now nah, I'm just going to blip over that. <laughs> what the names? Yeah, the names. Yeah, Because yeah. that as I was reading Crime and Punishment, actually, and uh, at some point I was reading the preface, and it told me that every name I'd been pronouncing had been pronounced wrong, and I'm just yes. sitting there going, uh, and I've stopped caring, and. No one has names now. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a big deal for me. Yeah. Well, Arrowcab agrees with me. Uh Uh-oh. I just, like, stopped in place. Okay. Um, Yeah, I'm rubber banding, too. Yeah. Um, Arrowcab agrees with me that the GH is probably a voiced velar fricative, meaning... (laughs) Anyone anyone pulling out a $10 word like that, I believe them. There you go. (laughs) Yes, the word fricative is a really fun word. Fricative. Uh, yes. Okay, I now challenge somebody to make a hobbit named Fricative. <laughs> oh, to, to, to have a character named Fricative? Yes. <laughs> Green cap it and post it to the Facebook page, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we didn't get a really chance to look around last time, but then yeah, I think we rode up here last time and we determined, oh, it's just rocks. Yeah, so. well, this is the least interesting of the three routes uh, to Angmar. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we do get the camp of the uh, Earthkin, but it's mm-hmm. not like that makes it more interesting. Uh, exactly. Really. So um, it doesn't really help with that element of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, anyway, um, so one of the things I want to be, I want to, we didn't get too much. I got distra- I got distracted looking at, uh, uh, banners and tents and weaponry and things last time and people's 
uh, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, (laughs) The thing that is interesting about Angmar culture, right? Um, And especially the way that they're constructing modern Angmar culture, as it were, which is a totally new thing, right? This is the Mm -hmm. kind of completely speculative thing that Lotro is doing um, to take the Angmar concept, like the the concept of historical Angmar as it's discussed in the appendices uh, and to imagine a you know, a, a, a re-arising of Angmar uh, here in the, th- in the late Third Age, um, you know, contemporary with the events of the Lord of the Rings, which again is, mm-hmm. is not only nowhere discussed, but it's, it's, you know, it states that Angmar isn't, you know, never rose again. So, you know, this is something that they have definitely, you know, made up and they've sort of deviated from on their own. Um, I wouldn't say this looks like it's very risen. <laughs> No, well, this isn't here, but so so the question is, okay, so what what did we have in Angmar, and what do we appear to have now in Angmar, right? How have they kind of constructed this? How have they how have they conceived uh, of these cultures and of this realm in the context of uh, of of Angmar? So, having decided that they're going to deviate from the text by making Angmar rise again, right? Uh-huh. Um, what do they, uh, how do they, how do they go about, how do they go about doing it? So, okay. So what do we know about, about Angmar? We know that Angmar was the, the, the land that was ruled by the witch king, um, uh-huh. by the Lord of the Nazgul, um, uh-huh. that he was set up in the North as a way of opposing and undermining Gilgalad's uh, the, the sort of the, 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 the former realm of Gilgalad, there was still a lot of elvish power in the north, right? You had Elrond in Imladris, which was established after the time of, uh, of the invasion by Sauron in the Second Age, right, with the Rings of Power. Um, so that's already, that's already been established there for a while. Um, it, it, you know, he's, he's, he's giving them another front to sort of fight on uh, and to oppose these these people in the north. Now, um, who are the people of Angmar? Um, we know that there were these these hillmen cultures, yeah. right? Um, uh, so there were these hillmen cultures that were drawn to Angmar. They weren't like indigenous Angmarim people, right? They were yeah. allies of Angmar. They were people that that sort of um, aligned themselves with um, with Angmar, um, but they weren't really part of it. And of course, Rudaur became yeah. affiliated with this too, right? They were also mm-hmm. composed of these same um, these same hillmen during the Civil War, right? So these people here and we spent some time looking at them and their culture here we see them living in tents they appear to be nomadic or people who used to be nomadic right they they see yeah everything looks temporary except it's not exactly temporary i mean as we were okay the post holes aren't but the canopy certainly exactly that's the thing it looks like 
you know, like a, a village that's been set up by people like based on the template of a like a nomadic village. But there isn't any you, real evidence yeah, that these people are nomadic. How do we make a town hall? Well, just let's make a tent and make it bigger. For right, sure it'll we'll, work out. We'll make a bigger tent, right? With huge <laughs> tent poles. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, One windstorm. One windstorm would just make the like half of this airborne. And certainly these guys superficially look very similar uh, to the hillmen that we saw um down in the North Downs, right? The ones who are yeah, gathered yeah. around the gates uh, uh, to Angmar. But even there, we saw the two different kinds, right? We saw the the sort of the native Angmarim, right? Those who are in in robes and uh, and everything. And then there's um, then there's the, the black Numenorian. Well, right. the self styled yeah. Numenorian, and maybe like neo Numenorian. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, that does seem to be more like the sort of culture there. Um, mm-hmm. This guy, does he have pretensions to be anything other than just a tribal chief? I don't think so, right? This is a guy. No. He's Very Bronze Age kind of looking thing. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a pretty, a really nice beard. Yeah, I, I, good I'm, beard. And is that his hair? That's a crest uh, on his helmet, right? Yeah, that's a, yeah, it's a crest on his helmet. From it definitely the made front, sort of it hair. really looks like. I mean, it matches his beard so well. It looks like he's got an eye patch too. He's like Woden here. Yeah, he is. This is this guy. I I really like Krenog, but yeah, it's yeah. that. The way that he has accessorized his like hairy crest, it really looks like a hairdo. Um, you know, he looks like a he, he looks like a centauran from Babylon Five instead of uh, like he's wearing a, a helmet. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I, I guess I've been to the British Museum and seen helmets like this, so I guess I just recognized it. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's clearly a helmet. It's just. I mean, do you think he chose it because it matched? Um, it's. Do we see any other helmets like this around here? Is he the only one who has a helmet like this? I haven't seen anyone else with helmets like that. In fact, no. helmets were a thing that I haven't seen much of anybody else wearing. So he's the only one who gets a hat. I think so. Okay, that does say something about the them other- already. Yeah, I think the other guys all had. We're all bareheaded. All the other. Well, it matches. It matches his belt and his, uh, um, epaulets or whatever. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Over here, though, so it's clearly made out of the same metal. It's a set. Mm-hmm. Whether he came by it, him, he whether he came by it through conquest or whether he made it is another question, or whether it was made here. I mean. Yeah. And he's also. He's also got those little gold dealies on on the leather straps that match the banners. Yes, and the, and those are very common. Of course, they're in they're done in silver on the, uh, you know, at the shoulders of the ladies' dresses that we were looking at. Um, uh, you think that's currency? It'd be a neat, easy way to hmm. transport your worth with you. Possibly. That's an interesting idea. Maybe even these little dangleys down off his belt, right? Could be similar. Uh-huh could actually be money 
the more you have, the more important you are. Right. Right. Yeah. Whether it's actual currency or just signs of status. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It also might explain why there's a lot of them on these banners. Like maybe some of them are token from enemy tribes. Right. Um, the circular emblem around his belly button, Bricktails, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. We haven't, I don't remember seeing that before. I think we saw something like that on the something. hillman outside in Esteldeen near the other gate. Yeah, something like uh, it. Something like it. But, um, maybe, is it part of a medal that's around his neck or is it just stuck on his chain medal here? His scale mail. It looks like it's just stuck on. I don't see anything that it's hanging from. <laughs> yeah. Let me adjust my resolution and hope I don't crash here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't see anything at high resolution. Yeah, no, he's just stuck on, yeah. And I love how his leather gauntlets look like they've got they've got metal knuckles, right? Oh, yeah, I if see that. If he punches that. you in the face, you will know it. Yeah, it's just maybe if it's just a circle right there. I mean, that's a very vulnerable spot. Maybe it's supposed to be some sort of ward against ward against harm or something like right, that. Possibly, possibly. It might be functional, but I don't right. think it would if it breaks up the armor. Some kind of charm or something. You're thinking, protecting a solar plexus or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, patron saint of vital organs. Yeah, you could see that. So, okay, so so what do we see here? So what is this culture and how does it fit? Well, um, we have this culture, which certainly seems related to the Hillmen. So historically, it's been a long time, right? It's been a long time since the breakup of Angmar. Mm-hmm. Um, we're supposed to understand then that the people's who used to be affiliated with Angmar have remained here, right? Some of them have maintained their old ways, right? Uh, some of them have, that is their old ways, meaning their old allegiance to, to Angmar, right? Yeah. And have gone back to it quickly uh, when Angmar has re-arisen. Some have not. So, do we, are we to understand that these people are are they descended from people who saw Angmar rise before and didn't want anything to do with it at the time? Right? Did they were are, have they always been resistant to Angmar, or are you they people imagine. that have grown away from them over time? You can't imagine the Iron Crown was a great master, you know? Right. No, I mean, they do seem to hold the loyalty of... It does seem to hold the loyalty of some, of course. Um, yes, of course. But, Out uh, of fear or inspiration, or like minds? Well, I mean, what you see, right? Uh, and I'm thinking back to things that we see in the Lone Lands and stuff, right? Because uh-huh. there, of course, it's the... Well, the, well that's specifically in a Rudaran context. Um, as we yes. go deeper into Rudaur, uh, historical Rudaur, and so we see modern uh, Hillman clans, which essentially are trying to recapture their glory of old, right? As you know, they believe that 
you know, their Rudauran ancestors were ill done by and and did not uh, uh, fully achieve the glory that was their due, and so they want to you know, <laughs> sort of finish the work of their ancestors seems to be the sort of the theme there. Um, you know, here you can imagine the Hillman tribes going back to Angmar um, because they see a chance for them to be powerful again, as they might believe that they were or have some kind of tradition that they were. Um well, some of these guys are just kind of like, what glory? <laughs> if right. it was so glorious, why are we still living in the mud over here? You know. Well, and that and that these people seem to just kind of hold themselves independent still because they don't want to they they don't want to enter into slavery, right? They don't want to enter into yeah. service to Angmar. So that their resistance to Angmar would seem to be mostly just stubbornness. Like maybe these people are descended from a tribe that. <laughs> Was you saw the the amount before. of grass that was in Esteldine, how you know mm-hmm. how there's nothing growing here. You can't imagine they're doing very well by just sort of right. scraping an existence here with the stagnant water and no vegetation. Right. All they had to do was just move south and there'd be, you know, fertile land that they could actually live there, but they choose to stay here. That says a lot about how stubborn these guys are. Right. And how pre- presumably how tied they feel to this land. Right. Yeah. Um, There's something about this particular area that holds yeah, you say, meaning you, to them. You look around, and it's not like it's nothing really to write home about, right? No one's gonna, no one's gonna be like, no one's gonna fail to see the land to the south as an upgrade from a purely like agricultural <laughs> standpoint or something <laughs> like that. Um, yeah. Even the herds, right? I mean, the herd, there are more, there are more wild aurochs down in the North Downs than there are up here. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah. So Amathorn is asking, was this whole region part of Arnor prior to the coming of the Witch King? Um, no, I mean, this seems to have been kind of a no man's land. Uh, I mean, we know that, so if we look at the map, um, yeah, this map, the map of Eriador here, um, Anuminus was the center of the kingdom. Arid Luin, you know, the elves were primarily out here. Forichel, we know that their, uh, their sway did not really reach that far. The North Downs, we know that it did, you know, was one of their major military centers, um, you know, so all the way out through the Trollshaws and the Lone Lands, you know, Arno was around here. Did they go up into Angmar? I don't think so. I mean, I think that wasn't. The... Yeah, sorry. Go sorry, ahead. but wasn't like this area up here, like even before the before the east, uh, before the west sank? Like, wasn't this whole northern area just Melkor's punching bag for a while? Well, not Melkor so much because. This is still so the arid Lewin, uh-huh. the mountains that are over by the ocean now, were the mountains that was the far eastern edge of Beleriand. Uh-huh. Um, so Melkor never really. Ha- I mean, of course, he was. It's not like he was not able to go all over the place and. Um, and yes, as Tillian is reminding us, uh, the Silmarillion mentions. Uh, Melkor taking a particular hand in raising the Misty Mountains as sort of an obstacle mm-hmm. uh, to try to, uh, uh, you know, like annoy Orome. Um, yeah. But um, so, you know, we know he was all over the place, 
But we don't have really any stories of Melkor directly interacting with folks on this side of the mound, other than, you know, like the, the men that came over, like the, you know, the, the Easterlings and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. It was just a vague notion of the north, and this is as north as this map gets. So. Right, exactly. But yeah, this is this is pretty far south. Um, mm-hmm. We know this is the this is the. Um, let me see if I can. Let me see if I can find it. Where's the map? Hang on a second. I know where I can find it. Let's see. Hang on a second. Let me. Let me let me look here. Getting my Beleriand map out. <laughs> uh, looking at my. Okay. Yeah, my I have film, trouble seeing uh, my, yeah. <laughs> my film film slideshow from last week. Okay, here we are. So <laughs> here is the Beleriand map from the Silmarillion. This is the Arid Lewin. So this is the very eastern edge of Beleriand. Um, uh-huh. So this set of mountains way over here on the right side of the Silmarillion map, that is these mountains on the very left side, right on the very edge of the coast of Eriador uh-huh. uh, in uh-huh. the modern map. So, but I don't believe um, that, uh, that, so this the bit of the arid Lewin that is left is not the northern bit. It's the southern bit. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, it's down here. So like the, the, the chunk is, is this is, this is, it's a chunk of Osirian that's left. Yes. Yes. I got uh, it. I wasn't thinking fourth dimensionally. Right. Exactly. So yeah, Angband and the North, like when we think about the North in the Silmarillion context, it's all mm-hmm. way, way north of, I, of what. Fort I Hall. think too much left to right, and I don't think so much north to south so right. much. I really gotta, right. you really gotta have the two maps right next to each other to see it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so was this area always blighted? Then you think, or was this something that that the Witch King did to it? I gotta think. Well, the fact that Lotro has depicted it as blighted is, of course, uh-huh. itself an interesting thing, right? Uh-huh. Um, yes. And I think perfectly plausible. Uh, that seems to me a very sensible kind of interpretation for them to do, as that's a pretty standard thing in Tolkien's work, right? That, you know, whenever any place that you have that is the, the stronghold of evil like that, that it that it blights <laughs> the land about it. You know, we see this, of course, in the desolation of Smaug. Uh, we see this even more forcibly, obviously, in the in the environs of uh, of Mordor. Uh, we see it in the uh, in the corruption of Mirkwood, and and Saruman's infliction on Isengard as well. Yes, exactly. We see him even. You know, in Saruman, though, it seems like it's even more pathetic than that. Like him cutting down all the trees. It's like he's trying to create a desolation. Like. He's not even, you know, like established it's enough. Always, yeah, it's always he's aping things without exactly. really understanding. <laughs> exactly. He is like insufficiently evil even to make a proper desolation about himself, but he's fronting, you know? He's like he's he's making like a faux desolation around Isengard in order to make, you know, Oh. Yeah. He tries it, so hard. <laughs> it really kind of seems such, like it. He's such a fanboy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, which is, which and I is never thought I would say that ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but um, 
anyway, yeah. So I gotta think that the, the these these groups here, we are seeing. You know, I think that that we are imagining here in uh, in the Lotro world. What does it look a millennium on? You know, a millennium on from Angmar. So Angmar was the great opponent. It was this blighted realm in the north. This sort of you know, this was Mordor North, right? Um, sort of like the northern, not a suburb, of course, but the, the summer palace. Yes, the, the northern extension, right? The country seat, uh, right, of of the Dark Lord. Um, and these are the for- and these are how the former allies have sort of fallen out. And now you've got these people who, as you say, have stubbornly stuck here, but now they're stubbornly remaining and stubbornly resisting and trying to maintain their independence. Um, and their sort of traditional ways. Let's look around a little bit more. See what. Let's look at the rest of their camp and see what more we can learn from their camp. With okay. it's uh, well, here's a food source. Right. Yep. So I don't know what these dudes eat. Right. I mean, a cow that big is going to eat a good deal of vegetable matter. Um, the answer is whatever it wants. Whatever <laughs> it wants. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, hang on, wait. We've got vegetable matter here. There's some shrubs. Mm. We've, got, we've got shrubberies. So yeah, <laughs> there we go. Uh, looks like w- these would be a snack for one of those th- things. But but these trees aren't doing very well. They they got lichen on them. They're they got yeah. They're well, all pale yeah. and bleached out like they're sick. Yeah, these main trees. Yeah, these these are not looking good at all. Oh, there's reeds and cattails and stuff. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. We've got reeds. Scrub. Oh, see, here's one grazing in the scrub right here. Oh, right down there, right? There we are. Yeah, right down here. Yeah. Yep, they're grazing. So this is, this, this, this looks like edible grass, right? So it's not completely rocky, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh. But yeah, it's still pretty sad. You're not getting you're not getting much of a crop out of this. And the trees this is obviously a very old tree. Uh it's I mean got it's goop enormous. In it. With what? It's got green goop in it. Yeah, what is up with that? That looks like an eyeball. I now can <laughs> only see like an eye and a gaping mouth underneath it. This tree is freaking me out. But yeah, it looks seriously unhappy this tree oh the branches are moving around yes check that out this is a sad tree yeah the way the branches are moving reminds me of uh, old man willow and the the ripples yeah going it's from not old man willow in the old forest it's a bit uncanny yeah well i don't think i noticed this before and now i'm creeped out me neither is the suggestion that this tree is okay? Yeah, we got the goop over here too. Again, did someone it's, try to stick an ant wife in here? It seems actively diseased. This tree. Yeah. Is this tree conscious? Is it moving around? Well, none of the other trees are doing that. Yeah. If it's a wind, it's a wind that's not disturbing any any of the other trees. You're right. Ooh, that was a Lovecraftian moment there. Oh. Yeah. It's been infected with the color out of space. Wow, yeah. Uh, O'Malley says that I, I am so not taking a nap near that tree. New. No. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, the Trave Galorg are strong like the Aurochs. Yeah, I believe you. Yep. 
do you guys eat the grass too? Because yeah, well, I guess if there's enough know. grass for the aurochs, they can eat the aurochs, right? But well, and with the dead tree bark, they can make fibers and clothing, I suppose. They don't use Ooh, skins. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't want to wear clothing made from that tree either. But well, that's that's what the Powhatans did. Yeah. Um. You pound you pound it with a rock so it's softer. Right. Let's see. Lots of skins hanging up to dry. And yes. This is the crafting area, right? This is the... Oh, uh, uh, yeah, we got one work table here. <laughs> yep. Yep. And... What is she doing the, over here? Uh, let's dies? see. Uh, looks like she's sorting out something. Yeah. She's definitely doing she's... a sorting gesture. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know what these pots it... are supposed to be full of. Grains? Porridge? <laughs> porridge. It could be porridge. Well, I, don't think... I can't think of anything else they'd have around here. Some sort of grass seed or something like that. Right. We're taking the yucky part and we're putting the good part in the pot. Right. I could definitely believe... A dye of some kind. It doesn't look like food, but, you know, I don't want to yeah, judge. Maybe. maybe I, it's it, she's not holding anything. She's holding thin air. We're just inferring here. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I like how the women are dressed, though. I mean, for such a morbid place, they have very elaborate looking dresses. Very, yes. I was noticing that. I mean, we were looking at their dresses over in the center, central island, and her dress is just as fancy as the others. Um mm -hmm. It was unclear at first whether those were perhaps, you know, noble women of the clan of some, in some way. Denoting rank. Yeah, but it doesn't seem to, I mean, or maybe she's high rank too, but it kind of looks, that looks unlikely. So um, it seems likelier to be everybody. She's got a lot of spangly metal discs all over her yes, too. Yes, exactly. Just especially those, do you see the silver versions up, up, on her, mm -hmm. uh, up on her shoulders by her detachable sleeves? Yep. Yeah, we were noticing that before, too. Notice that this is not carved out, right? This is a natural opening in the rocks here. None of this has been uh, worked. We don't, I don't see any evidence of stonework. Um, nope. Though, again, presumably they've been here for a while. Um, like I said, this looks like the moat here. It's like the moat dried up and they're... Living in what's left of it, right? Maybe, yeah. Oh, the moat to that big old thing up there, right? Yeah, that, to that the big wall. fortress right. up there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, and pigs, more okay. food. We've got pigs. Another food source. And these are, is this water? For is this a, a feeding trough? For Oryx, maybe. For Oryx, there was but one down in the crafting area, too, I noticed. They just seem to go wherever they want. <laughs> I imagine yeah. with the, the scrub grass disappearing, they do have to shift around quite a bit. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they're genuinely nomadic in that way. Oh, look, leather goods. These are all leather goods. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Lots of leather we've seen. Mm -hmm. What do they do over here? Right, right here. They complain about roving threats, obviously. Oh, yes. Uh, story time. Story time. No, there's a seat and drums right there. Oh, right. Oh, yes. Okay, I see. 
I now see the story time thing. Oh, he's got the same pots of things. Well, he's got food in front of him, though. Little right. biscuits or something, or Johnny right cakes, point. I don't know. And he's got oh, he's riding on tree bark. He's got a tree bark. Yeah? It looks like it's... Maybe. Maybe. Oh, no, it is the map. Sorry. It looks like birch bark texture. Nothing. Which would make sense. You got a ton of dying trees around here. I'm sure you got a lot of bir tree bark. Right. Okay, all right. We got some we got some furs here. Okay, so we uh, so that story time. I agree. That must be the story time tent. Ooh, nice dragon on the shield. Yes, yes. That that shield is a really attractive one. We were looking at see she's dressed really fancy too. Same detachable sleeves. Same bangles on the front. Don't step on the sick guy. Sorry, I didn't mean to step <laughs> had, on the sick yeah, guy. There. She's got the bone saw out and everything. Look at that. Dude, she does have the bone saw out. Yeah. Ooh, and, and is that the, is that part of that dude's anatomy? That's in no, the, that's in those a, pinchers there? It's something in tongs. It's something in tongs. Yeah, I know. Maybe it's was, maybe was, it's the thing she's going to wedge in his teeth. I don't know. Oh, I'm wondering if it's something that was extracted from his person. Uh Oh, yeah, it looks like a piece of shrapnel or something, like yeah. bronze plating. Ugh. And an amphora. Or something like Hopefully an Hopefully anesthetic, yes. Yes. At least alcoholic. So the, and this is one of those extremely... <laughs> and a big old bucket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, man. That's pretty bad. Yes, these this tools, guy's the tongs and the... The bone saw, and then those pliers. The little tweezers. Yeah. Yeah. Twi tweezers or pliers. Man. I think this is one of the more graphic depictions of healing we've seen in the game. Yeah. Wow. And she's got, yeah, she's. The material of her dress doesn't look quite as fine as uh, the others. <laughs> She got spangly bangles. But she's she got the same spangly she bangles. She does have the same and, and and the face painter, what looks well like it could be henna or something on in the designs uh, of her face. It's white, it's probably mud based. Like chalk. Like if there's chalk mud around here. Right, there's that too, but sorry, I'm not seeing the, the other one. I, keep getting the I can't get in the right angle here. <laughs> yeah, I know. Her face is hard to see the way she's looking down, but her dress looks the same as the woman in the other tents, though. Yes, it does. It does. And I'm assuming last week you guys went over the Triskel in the banner. Uh, wait, which one? The Triskel. The little uh, three-legged symbol here on the banner. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, okay. So I'll say no more about that then. Yeah, we. Yeah. We. yeah, we were looking at the banners there. Is this face painter? She bloodied up. This one just looks like she's got some wounds on her. The one straight in front here. The the green one with the tattered dress, uh, out in front. She's holding a log like she's trying to menace me. Here we are. This one. This is this is a warrior woman right here. She's. Oh yeah, she's beat up. She's beat up, and her dress is all patched up and torn. Yes. Yes. Do yeah. not mess with her. Yeah, no, she's been she's been active <laughs> and victorious, it would seem. But she's missing a lot of her bangles. She is. She doesn't have 
Yeah. Were they stolen and taken as trophies? But she's even got some of the, like, the friend, she's got patches on her dress and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, whereas, again, if, like, we look over... Maybe you don't wear your bangles into batter, this battle. Maybe By the way, this, this woman over here, the woman in, like, the sort of pink or... Whatever oh, I see is. the I see the lines now. That's what I was talking about. The, what what okay. looks like it could the be. Okay, but the one in yeah. the tent had white circles around her eyes. Yeah, and her I forehead. saw. I kind of saw that. I couldn't look see it clearly, but yeah, this one yeah. looks more like ashes. Yeah. Oh, and she's got some tattoos too. Yeah, exactly. I think that's. I can't yeah. tell whether it's actually tattooing. It's faint enough that it looks like it might not be actually tattooing, but maybe it is. Oh, you can get faint tattoos depending on what you're using for the pigment. That's true. That's true. So these people in here, they're just hanging out? Uh, they look like they're not feeling so good, especially this guy here. Are we recuperating? Yeah, this is the recoup. Okay. Aaron Crown grows stronger, so we're going to recoup and complain. Hey, does this woman completely paint her face? This woman on the other side there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's got, She's got some... like, proper woad stuff yeah, on her. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. It's kind of green. Yeah, it's green. That's proper green. wonder where she got the pigment for that. It was, like, some sort of plant around here doing that. Please don't let it be from that tree. <laughs> right, exactly. Tell me you didn't get the green color from the goop that's coming out of that tree. That would be bad. Uh, I, I, once again, proving how brave she is. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. So, no, I think we can say pretty clearly that that style of dress, even with all the fancy uh, bangles and things, is pretty standard. That's how that's how the women of this tribe but, dress. Oh, but the fact it's... that the one, the one raggedy woman had no bangles does sort of indicate that they are status or currency. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. And Maybe uh, taking his trophies in battle. Right, maybe she didn't take them with her into battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or she she either left them at home or they were taken. Or she never had any. Right, right, yeah. yeah I don't know, she looks tough enough that she probably had some, you gotta think. Yeah. Okay, so... Notice what we don't get here. We get no shrines? No... Yeah. Totems? Right, banners? But no mm-hmm. clear sense of um, of any kind of uh, religion or anything among them. Not even elders that are revered. It doesn't seem like. I and mean, we get the chief, right? Um, and he does have a hat. Uh, but yes. apart from the fact that he's wearing a helmet, nobody else is. Um, and you know his armor's a little bit nicer, and and uh, you know he's got those metal knuckles. But again, <clears throat> it doesn't look like. Uh, there's I, th- not so much to separate him as I might have thought. I do know there's some sacred rocks up ahead. Yes, there are some head. sacred rocks. But those are like that's the historical, only thing. right? As much as they are. Yes. Uh, y- y- yeah. Yeah. Well, totems are historical, too. It's all sure. about the history of the tribe and what brings them together. Sure. But, yeah, yeah it's none of it's here. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The only Everything? thing that kind of looks like that are the dragons on the shield. That's the only indication that they have right. some sort of... Right. Um, oh, I, I can only think of the Mexican word. Um, 
you know, a spirit guide right. animal. Okay. Right, right. Yeah, and we saw that same dragon kind of figure. You can still see it up here on the edges of the gateway, right? The little band. Yeah, yeah. See over. The chieftain had some of those behind him, too. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, and I'm just noticing that the the things that look like bell pulls, right, that we were mm-hmm. noticing on the... Those are like the the little dangles on the belt of the chieftain were like little miniature. Oh yeah, right, this remind me a bit of some uh, temple stuff you see in Japanese Shinto. Right. Decoration. Right. Yeah, they do. Yeah. So we get another gateway. These gateways are interesting. We see several of these right at the end. They're they seem completely non-functional. Well, which indicates that these are the totems right here. Conceivably, yeah. I mean, why would Spiritual. you build a gate like this? Like like a Tori gateway in Japan, once again. Right. It's to symbolize a gateway between this world and the next. Or here it seems to be between their people and... Like their land and the part the land that is not their land. Safety and certain death. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. As many an underlevel PC has discovered in this area, yes. Yeah. Um Guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Um now there was also one in the middle. It's not just a boundary thing, that gateway. Uh-huh. Um because we did see one in the middle, like, uh, but there it was at the boundary of the part of the island, to the part of the island where Krenog was, right? Yeah, I mean, it does mark the town, Amethorn, but that's the thing, right? Like, I don't know, I find it a kind of a strange marking. Um, and when I say it's non functional, of course, I mean it's, it's not put there for defense or anything, it's not a gateway, there's no actual gate there. It's like if there was walls, it would be some sort of doorway, you know, support, but there's yeah. nothing to support. Yeah, see, here's the other one that I was thinking of, and it marks the entrance to yes. the part of the village where the chief is. It's almost like a, a cargo cult of thresholds and threshold guardians, you know? <laughs> we don't know what they're for, but we know when people pass under them, things happen. You know? Right, right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. But see, I don't get the impression that these people move around. I think they're set yeah. here. I think this is this, even the 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 apparent antiquity of these arches, right? Yeah. These, these I mean, this is yeah, this is old wood. Yes, this is, very this is old, old wood. wood. And I can't believe that they uproot this and take it with them elsewhere. <laughs> It's almost like that sort of trailer culture, the whole, we're not going to be in this trailer forever, so don't get comfortable. We're not going to be in here forever. That's what Grandma said, and we're still living in the trailer. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, um, whether it used to be a nomadic culture and isn't any longer, but still retain, you know, the culture, cultural groupings of that, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, or, or, uh, you know, whether there's, there's some other principle involved. Like, we can't go until blah right, blah happens. Right, that kind of thing. Now, we don't get any indi- indicator of that. Um, and we just know that they refuse to give in to Angmar. 
but uh, maybe that was the until. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. So the last vestige of the Iron Crown is driven out. Yeah, and then we'll have walls again. <laughs> yeah, well, right. <laughs> That's ironic, isn't it? Uh, hmm. As soon as the enemy is vanquished, then we'll build walls. Um, but uh, anyway, so we you know we will will go out and we'll see some other encampments of the other tribes, which are like these, but clearly the enemies of these. These are the trade Duverdine that they were just talking about as he walked through. Um, so we'll look out through the rest of Angmar next time. Um, through uh, we'll still be sticking here in the the western part of Angmar. Um, through the Fasachlaran and and uh, uh, and and up through here, so we'll um, uh-huh. see how far we can get exploring around this part of Angmar and try to try to get the sense of the the sort of the geopolitical lay of the land here in Angmar as they've depicted uh-huh. it. Um, uh, but these people are an, are an important sort of base here. Yeah. Once again, you guys got plenty of notice. It's a good time to get the. Um the uh, book quest that'll get yes. you through the, through the warding statues. It yes. starts in Esteldin with Candace and keeps going from there. Yeah. So from uh, it's, it's the book six uh, epic mm-hmm. line. Yeah. Yep. The six. Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, well, I'm going to let people go. It's late now. Thanks for uh, sticking with me and for, uh, uh, for, for hanging out and waiting for me though. I started late uh, and uh, I will see you guys next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.